0: Now, for your listening pleasure, a Strange Uncle's Replay. Open the gates.
1: This is a fourth-hand production.
2: More than just criminals, they're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. It's
3: this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways.
4: And welcome to Strange Jungles, everybody. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm the Rhinoceros. Ooh. Is that a bad Sesame Street joke? I can never tell with you Nah, flat of the concords, man Oh, shit, there you go Yeah, anyway um, Hopefully you guys are good, right? I mean, it's been busy John, you were camping We were doing something Josh, you bought a pool Like, we got all kinds of weird shit going on
5: Yeah, I almost died in the desert Not really, but oh, uh it cool. was It was a brutal, brutal trip But it was fun. We made it back alive. Uh, Didn't see anything because the trailhead that we wanted to go was closed. So we had to take this other trailhead that the lady recommended. But then it was like five miles to water and the beating desert sun. And then it was even further away to anything we're seeing. So, yeah, we just set up camp, uh, tended to our blisters and everything and heat stroke. And (laughs) decided to wake up early the next morning and walk back. Where'd you guys go? We went to Grand Staircase Escalante. Mm. but oh, okay. One of the trailheads, the sand was so deep that the lady at the visitor center that we called was like four by fours are getting stuck and they just put out a thing like recommending no one try it. And if they do, it's at their own risk. And mm. like trucks were getting stuck out there. So we did hurricane wash and that fucking sucks. So if anybody ever decides to go hike down to the grand staircase escalante do not i repeat do not <laughs> take the hurricane wash trailhead it's miserable it sucks so much of it is in like the sand and like the front of my calf muscles are still like just so sore just but, from yeah. trying
4: to it's like when you walk through two feet of snow without snowshoes just say yeah. you know it's like you still have your dog right hopefully Came back safe and alive? And uh, dogs time. aren't
5: allowed, so we didn't even bring her. Oh, good. So you didn't have um, to. But eat sand the dogs. Is, yeah. Sand is worse. Sand is worse than snow. <laughs> yeah, for I sure.
4: Can, I can imagine. Sure. That's funny. Well, we went to Zions. That was kind of the same. They had some trailheads there that were like a little, mm, I don't know, a little sketchy, you know, but not too bad. Well, sorry, dude. I know you look forward to going out, but, you know, at the same time, glad you're alive. I mean, it's you it's know? good.
5: The, the solitude's always nice. I got butt naked and ate a ready to uh, Ready to eat meals, so that was good. TMI, awesome. Yeah, that sounds great.
4: <laughs> so, well, I'm going to take a trip this weekend. A, so,
5: <laughs> you, you know, think that's oh, yeah, a good thing? I th- well, I was going to say, I think that's exactly enough information. <laughs> <about> <laughs> too too much. Much. <laughs> probably true.
4: <laughs> I'm sure there's some alcohol involved, but maybe not a lot. You know, I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, um, thank you for joining everybody. You know, like I said, we got kind of busy lives. Of course, we still have a COVID situation going on amongst everything else. Um, So here we are again, you know, kind of separated. So hopefully, you know, one of these days. Um, But at the same time, on the backside of all that, it gives us all time to read and research and write and come up with ideas. And, uh, you know, hopefully you're caught up enough where you heard the Phoenix Lights. And again, thank you, Ian. That was an idea from one of our Patreon members. Uh, and I thought that episode turned out pretty good. Things that I didn't know that was kind of, you know, released. I thought it was kind of kind of neat.
5: But, yeah, I just wish every event that ever exists doesn't get fucking shot down. I, oh,
6: yeah. Yeah, I know. I've been
5: listening to Strange
6: Arrivals. That's basically like a podcast series that so far, at least the first season, is just about the Betty and Barney Hill case. And it's been basically like what we did to the Warrens and it's making me very sad. <laughs> oh Jesus. that's uh, And we didn't do good on the Warrens. That's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, really interesting and it's really well done. So I recommend listening to it. It's just pissing me off because it's basically all like, well, actually it's hmm. probably really this. And I'm just like, God damn it. Let it be fucking aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
4: You know, well, it's a healthy skepticism. That's the thing. And as long as we stay on that track, I, th- I think we're doing okay. But it is kind of yep. a fucking downer when you find out maybe it wasn't the fucking thing, you know? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, on this one, John, I'm going to kind of throw it to you. So, you know, I kind of led the Phoenix Heights a little bit. You led this one. You've been reading a book that I get, God, it's more than a book. I, I think it's a fucking doorstop. <laughs> Give us right? a shot of
6: that bad dude.
5: It's a, This thing is a textbook it's the encyclopedia <laughs> Rendleshamia. it's the oh, Rendlesham enigma and i have been reading it it's written by jim peniston he's going to be the main character one of the main characters in this story that we're going to tell you and gary osborne helped him write it or helped write it as well um yeah this thing is just that's, that's a fucking ridiculous phone book. that's it, the yeah, white pages, pages dude i bet you so, rip that in
4: half i bet you, you can't do that
5: oh there's no way i'll try on <laughs> film <laughs> Oh uh, yeah. Well, I need to channel some Buddhist monk to have that ability. To help you do that. So yeah. well that's kind of um, what
4: yeah, that's what you're taking a lot of this off of. I started reading a book by Nick Redfern, but I didn't get as far as you are into the Enigma. So it just like John, you know, run through this thing. But but yeah, I mean what we're gonna cover and I'll let you I'll throw it on your side a little yeah. bit.
5: So um I like I said, we I've been reading the Rindlesham Enigma. And that's basically where I've done all my research is just this book itself. And I mean, I've heard of the Rendlesham incident because it's one of the most famous UFO cases out there. And I've just, you know, I've seen the ancient aliens. I've seen the Nick Pope stuff. Like I've seen all the things here and there, heard about it, but uh, I've really dived in with this book. And so I thought we would give our listeners our take and the story of the Rendlesham incident. Yeah. As it is known as.
6: I'm super pumped because this is something I thought I knew a lot about. And as we were talking before we started recording, I'm like, oh, shit, maybe I don't know as much about this as I thought. So yeah, I'm with you, I'm Josh. Excited.
4: I didn't really know. I mean, I've heard of it. I heard the name. But to what expanse, like this basically is a Roswell of, of Britain, if not bigger. And I, I had no clue it was that much of a thing. Um, yeah, a lot of ins and outs on this one.
5: Yeah, I mean, I was kind of in that same boat before I started reading this. Um, you know, I knew the, the main things like, some air force guys saw a ufo or something and there's some recordings of it or something but uh it's a very involved very involved story especially anything involving the military it all, always is
4: yeah you know there's something to be said about it. i think we've said this before the military intelligence um is just a conundrum it doesn't exist and it amazes me that you have an organization like the military that just sometimes can't get shit together and I think there's a lot of that in here um but then again you know to say you know again I watched a documentary was reading the book John you know a lot more but um there's so many ins and outs and there's so many weeds in this thing uh, it really mm-hmm. is crazy it's just absolutely crazy
5: yeah well that being said let's uh take a deep dive into the Rendlesham incident so on a chilly Christmas evening back in 1980, outside of two twin airbases, the Rindlesham Forest was about to play host to one of the most talked about and documented UFO events to ever take place. It is known as Great Britain's Roswell and more famously referred to as the Rindlesham Forest Incident. The events that took place over a three-day period in the forest has had a lasting impact on all who witnessed the seemingly impossible phenomenon. Countless numbers of TV shows and full-length documentaries have been made, and multiple books written on this controversial topic. Join us as we weave through this story of truth and lies. And if you haven't heard this story before, let us blow your minds with what you are about to hear. Open the gates. It was
6: dubbed Britain's Roswell. The story goes that a number of US servicemen saw an alien spacecraft near their air force base in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk in 1980.
3: The events began on the evening of the 26th of December when a subborn resident in the local village reported a mysterious shape like an upturned mushroom in the sky above his garden. As they get closer to the lights, they
2: realize it's not a crash, it's an aircraft but unlike any they've ever seen.
4: I picked the '80s just because this happened in the 1980, so I figured that was yeah. That I was liked cute. it.
5: I liked it. <laughs> I was vibing. So yeah, we're gonna take this story from the very, very beginning. We're not gonna start out with them in the forest. So basically, on Christmas of 1980, December 25th. Started out as just a regular day for Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston. He was about to start his six day tour, which basically means his six day work week essentially. But I guess Wait, they call what? it a tour in military terms.
6: So Box Day. Boxing day, right? The the chair force calls
5: the work week <laughs> a tour. I suppose like they're fucking deploying to Nam or some shit. I don't know. That's that's what he said in the book. He was about to start a six day tour on the twin bases.
6: Don't get me started
5: on the Air Force. Fucking <laughs> god, I'm so. Uh, never mind. Keep going. Hey man, it's it's not my words, but I I, I wanted to use some some uh, military verbiage. But uh, he, so the twin bases we're talking about are RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge. Um, They are located in Suffolk, England. They're twin air bases. And America acquired them uh, during the Cold War. They used to belong to England, but they turned into American air bases uh, sometime during the Cold War. And Staff Sergeant Pennison he provided on-the-ground security police duties. And he was responsible for providing supervision of the security force. Uh, forces, and at that time, he also carried a top secret U.S. and NATO security clearance, and was responsible for the protection of war-making resources on those bases. So, if
6: I remember right, the reason that they became populated with uh, U.S. military, I think they were still joint bases. So, I think right. that the, the RAF was still there also. Mm-hmm. But the reason, the reasoning for that was, if I remember right, there was a nuclear wing that was stationed at one of the bases.
5: Yeah, and I and I think they were trying to kind of keep that hush-hush that they had that.
6: The,
5: yeah.
4: Well, yeah, Sorry. and you got to think about the time too. I mean, 1980, you know, we're still we still have some other factions that we're not really, you know, friends with per se. So that yeah, might I be mean, some of
5: that joint, you know, cooperation going on. Mhm. And I mean, the 1980s were politically very sketchy, you know, very tumultuous times in the 80s very and we also set up uh naval bases and air force bases in pretty
6: much every country that we had a foothold in after world war 2 so
5: absolutely mm-hmm. yeah good times good times good, had by all just good times guys <laughs> love it love the energy love the energy great so jim pennison he um just kind of walked around the bases. He reported for duty on Christmas evening. Uh, He began making his rounds to the various posts around RF Bentwaters. And once he kind of did his duties at Bentwaters, his plan was to go over to Woodbridge and basically carry on with his duties. But being that it was Christmas night, the bases were virtually quiet. Like there, there wasn't anything going on besides the dudes that were supposed to be on duty kind of doing their things around the bases. But really the the most exciting thing was they were playing christmas songs over the radio and there was uh, a dude assigned to be dj and he was taking requests so i mean that's about as exciting as it was getting over there but as jim Penniston was kind of doing his rounds and doing all that stuff um a 20-year-old airman first class named John Burroughs was patrolling the perimeter of Woodbridge with his superior and on-site supervisor Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens. And as they patrolled around the perimeter and carried on with small talk, Steffens suddenly noticed strange red and blue lights coming from outside of the RAF Woodbridge base. And it seemed like these lights were coming from the top of the pine trees in the Rendlesham Forest. And that is just... It was, it seemed like it was coming just due east of, there's a place called the East Gate. And Burroughs, I guess, from everything I've read in this book, it just seems like Burroughs was just a 20 year old kid. Like, just like I was in the Navy, you sign
4: up in 19 and just like, you know, he, he, he doesn't sound you know, like no he's got either. it
5: together. Like you think right. of it, you think of a naval officer and you think of like, yes, sir. No, sir. Straight. Like, yes. Yes pay attention everything but like Not the this case. kid <laughs> this it's from everything I'm gathering from what I've read it seems like John Burroughs is just a damn kid in the military which is pretty yeah, common it, you know
4: and more than likely it was his first uh, like his first duty 20 years old again he probably he can't join any military before 18 you know he went through boot mm-hmm. camp he went through maybe an a school if he was army navy um and this was his first gig i mean i knew a lot of guys that went over to germany and england and japan you know across i was in japan and it's the same thing you don't really know what's going on you're oh, just yeah. doing your day-to-day yeah. as best you can you know
5: yeah my so. i mean my dad joined the marines in vietnam as late 17 so yeah yeah i mean i get it but so burroughs didn't see these lights at first and he was just like off doing whatever i think he you know him and steffens were having like some small talk and he just wasn't really paying attention what the hell probably boring shit steffens was saying so i guess he kind of had steffens had to exp- exclaim like what is that have you seen that before and the area they were looking at had like tall Corsican pl- uh, pine trees, basically as tall as like high as 80 feet and were roughly about five to 10 feet apart from one another. And Burroughs says he then looked to where Stephens was pointing and saw what he later described as different colored lightings, green, red, blue, and white lights. And by the time that he looked, the lights had descended into the tree line. So both men had observed these lights, which by now were deep inside the tree line of the woods and how caused the surrounding forest to light up the two men were completely mesmerized and baffled as to just what the hell they were seeing they decided to go off base and into the forest without any permission to see what it was they were seeing <laughs> mistake number one <laughs> i just imagine
6: Stephens and burrows just like fucking <laughs> burrows just being like yeah 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 kid, shut up just being so annoyed and not even paying attention to anything he's saying. And that's why I had to be like, look over here, man. Have you ever seen anything like this before?
5: (laughs) Yeah. um, And uh, John Burroughs gives the excuse that why they just decided to go out into the forest and not um, tell anyone is because they had their firearms. And I guess once they leave the base, they're American military, but they're Stepping onto English soil, um, so he's like, we didn't have we didn't have anybody to give our guns to, and we wanted to like kind of check out a little further what was going on out in the forest. So they just kind of like, Steffens told him to open the combination to the East Gate, and they just kind of like dipped out. And so they continued east down Eastgate Road until they came to a T junction in the road facing Rendlesham Forest. Burroughs said that the two of them exited the vehicle and immediately noticed static electricity in the air. And it's from here that Burroughs says that both he and Steffens observed a large gl- glowing white light coming from somewhere inside the woods. Hmm. And at this point in time, it appears that the men were seeing two different sources of light, one glowing white light closer to the road that they were on and blue and red lights that were coming from deeper inside the forest. And the two of them talked about what they should do you know what the hell they were seeing like they were pretty confused even uh bud steffens had parked the car in the direction back to the base right like they didn't just park the car and get out like he was like all right i'm gonna park this thing just in case i get out because i think they were just kind of sketched out on what the hell it was i mean no one was thinking ufo at this point but uh he was prepared to get in the car and just go
6: well that and like if if they wandered out off the uh, American soil of the Air Force Base um, a- into just like regular old England with their guns. That's kind of illegal. See, so that was yeah. the
4: thing. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what we call, again, military. We call double jeopardy. So, you know, you're now you're off of military property. So if you would have got, if they would have got caught out there with, you know, weapons, it probably wouldn't have been a good thing because there's nothing the military no. can do when you're on civilian territory, they can prosecute you technically. So yeah. that was kind of a, uh, it's a little sketchy move, you know, for them to just go, Hey, let's go research. But yeah. then again, it's eighties. So and,
6: and Britain has a very, very different take on the right to bear arms than the United States. Does. Oh yeah. Uh, basically you don't have that right there. Like you, you have to have special permits and basically you can own like guns to be on a farm yeah. legally. Like, you could have a shotgun if you're on a farm, basically, and that's about it. It's my understanding. Japan like, was the same way. You yeah, down. real, real, real special permission to have anything besides that. Right.
5: Yeah, so, just uh, Burroughs, so Burroughs and Steffens. Steffens is Burroughs' uh, superior, and they kind of talk about like, okay, we need to report this. But rather than calling it just over the radio because the radios are just like, unsecure public can tap into those radio frequencies and everything. They hightail it back to the base, uh, back to the Eastgate gate security uh, post, and they reach for a landline. And once, once they get to the Eastgate and get the landline, they report the sightings to a Sergeant McCabe. And I guess that Burroughs being this 20 year old kid was kind of known for playing pranks and just kind of being a goofball or something like that. So Sergeant McCabe didn't even really take his uh, report seriously.
0: Well, yeah. yeah,
5: Okay. Like (laughs) it's like, whatever, whatever Burroughs, like you're not, you're not pulling one on me. You know, he figured that it's Christmas it's boring around here. Like there's no action happening on Christmas. Like everybody's (laughs) just relaxing, eating food, listening to Christmas songs over the radio. Like, is this your Christmas prank?
4: Did did you just put coal in my stocking type fucking thing? Yeah.
5: Well, yeah. And I mean, even uh, McCabe went and like checked radars, didn't see anything in the air. There was no scheduled uh, flights in that area at the time. So he just wouldn't believe him. So, and John Burroughs was pretty excited at this time. And he's described as being pretty damn amped up this whole time during the whole event. Um, he handed the phone to Bud Steffens and Bud Steffens is like, yeah, there's something out here, man. Like I, I do not know what that is, but there's something out here that we need to, we need to check out what it is. Possibly a down craft was basically the, the consensus basically. Yeah. um, Also it's worth mentioning that staff Sergeant Bud Steffens has never made an official statement or given any interviews at all.
4: I was going to say, I'm glad you said that because I caught that in the documentary I was watching. Like he just mums a word for that guy. You know, he's, he hasn't said
5: anything. We'll get into that when we get into the di- disinformation, but um, yeah, it's pretty interesting that he's just like, Nope, not even going to talk about it, which I don't know. I guess in the UFO land, that kind of position kind of gives it credibility. Yeah. Well, in a
6: weird way. It's, it's, if you deny it, then that's an admission like uh, Glenn Greenwald was talking about on an episode of the black belt that I listened to recently. Like a denial is basically tacit admission to a lot of UFO researchers. Like, so if he came out and was like, nah, didn't see anything. It's all a bunch of bullshit. Uh, people would be like, he's lying. But yeah. if uh, if he came out and confirmed it, people would probably think he was cashing in. I don't know. It's like a weird paradox in your yeah. research.
5: And I, I literally listened to that just the other day. Uh, John Greenwald, that was a... Oh, yeah. Sorry, oh, yeah. Glenn Greenwald, a all journalist. Yeah.
6: That, so. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so basically after that report garnered wings and went to Center for Security Control, CSC, Um, It went down the chain of command from there and basically while all this excitement is going on, like there's something going on in the forest, there's all these lights popping up, you know, it's quite the spectacle. Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston was in the chow hall and he was just about to sit down for a cup of coffee. He was about to enjoy a hot meal. It was approaching midnight and he says that he was sitting down and he was told to contact CSC immediately via landline, Hmm. which when you're talking landlines back in the day, like it's something, it's a thing it's, it's top secret, you know, like no one can hear this except the people on the, on the phone, you know, it's not going off over the radio. And so I think staff Sergeant coffee, Dave coffee told him, uh, picked up the other end and let Jim know that he needed to head out to the East gate and meet up with two law enforcement personnel, via Stephens and Burroughs and coffee told him there was a quasi emergency going on and he wanted him to investigate. Jim obviously wanted more information, uh, but that's about all coffee was uh, like willing to elaborate on. And he said, like once he got to the East gate, they, you know, they would let him know what's going on, but like he needed to get out there and he wasn't going to be given any information.
4: Well, and they're, so, and they're having these conversations in the middle of a chow hall too. So I'm sure that mm-hmm. some of that is, you know, Hey, let's only say what we need to say, you know, mm-hmm. and no
5: more type thing. So, yeah. 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 So since uh, coffee wasn't giving him, he wasn't willing to elaborate on any information. Penniston thought that it might not be that big of a deal. And he asked like, you know, can I just eat my meal and then head out there when I'm done? Like, and coffee stressed that he needed to leave immediately, and this was really important. So, mm. reluctantly, Jim Pinniston puts down his coffee, stops eating his food, and begins to head out to the East Gate. And right before he heads out, he checks his watch and he notes that it is two minutes after midnight, the morning of December 26th. And this is going to be the last quote-unquote normal night Jim was going to experience for years to come.
4: And years is a stretched term. That's amazing. I wish it
5: had been two minutes to midnight.
4: I, I, I Thank you. I was saying Iron Maiden too, but that yeah, wasn't the case. Yeah, didn't come to fruition. Um, we're going to play a clip. Then right after that, we're going to do a commercial break, and then we're going to come back to this story. John, thank you. I appreciate it. In this clip, we're going to play uh, basically is a preset of uh, Penniston and what yeah. he really – you know, he didn't know what he was encountering and what he was about to step into, but uh, little did he know he would. So, stand by, guys. Here's
7: exactly what I was thinking. I'm going out there with my mindset was like this. I'm out, going to go out and set up an intercontrol point for a downed aircraft, a crashed. Uh, we're going to go ahead and tag uh, classified material and body parts. That's what I'm thinking, and then we're going to set up the intercontrol point so we can get emergency response people out there. When I got up to the area where I seen it wasn't an aircraft crash and it was something that I couldn't identify. I was perplexed. Uh, not understanding what I was seeing. I I, I hadn't been trained for anything even close to that, you know. So here's my the gear adjustments were were switching were just crazy. I went from uh crashing recovery uh, thoughts to um I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what is in front of me.
0: Evening, ma'am. Hey, y'all. What can I do you for? Can I have a glass of Chardonnay? I'm sorry, darling, we don't serve that here. Any Merlot? I'm pretty sure you don't want these feet going nowhere near them grapes. All righty, how about a craft beer? Oh yeah, we got plenty of craft beer. Which one you want? No, not crap beer. Craft beer. Oh, no, hell no. I'm, I'm pretty sure the bar down the street serves that. Okay, well, what do you serve? I'm glad you asked. Welcome to the Backwoods Barcast. We serve up moonshine, cheap beer, bottom shelf liquor, and stories even harder to swallow. Join Nick and Brittany and the janitor Steven as we discuss southeastern mysteries and mayhem including but not limited to UFOs, true crime, the paranormal, and much more. So knock four times, grab a stool, let the bar talk commence, and as always, drink more beer.
5: It only took Staff Sergeant Pinnison four minutes to drive from the Chow Hall to the East Gate. When he arrived, he was greeted by Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens and a very excited Airman First Class John Burroughs. <laughs> Jim still had no idea why he was out there, and he first thought it had something to do with John Burroughs because he was just acting so fucking crazy that he's like, okay, is, is he why I'm out here? Well, is not, this why? Like, is this why I had to put down my coffee and food? Is for this psycho? What? Well, not only that, Man. but but I,
4: I think really that the guy has kind of a, a reputation of being a prankster. So, you know, maybe that I would sure everybody kind of thought the same thing.
6: <laughs> maybe that's yeah, going that, through the back of his mind. I think excited twenty year olds rarely get taken
5: seriously by anybody. Yep. True. Yeah. I I don't think I've ever taken an excited twenty year old. Seriously, not Including myself. when I was one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not even me. Um, but Steffens assured Jim that Burroughs was fine and that he was not the reason Jim had to leave his hot meal behind at the chow hall. Steffens stretched out his arm and pointed to a section of Rundlesham Forest. And Jim followed the direction in which Steffens was pointing. And he noticed way off in the distance that a part of the canopy of the forest had a distinct dome of white-yellowish light over it, which extended some way out on both sides of what at first looked like a multiple array of colors emanating from the center of the forest floor. And Jim's first thought was that it looked unusual for sure, but it most definitely had to be a fire. I mean, what else What right. else could it possibly be? He saw yellow, orange, red, bluish types of glowing light, which was standard with aircraft cra- crashes, and that's mm-hmm. kind of like jet fuel and like titanium mixing together. And it kind of makes those certain colors. So, um, that's, I mean, what else really could it be? I mean, it just kind of looked like from, from a rational kind of point of view immediately, it just looked like a plane crash, but after he he said, after he, watching the lights for no more than one minute, Jim says he noticed a red light blinking on and off in five to se- 10 second intervals directly in the center of the area and at ground level. And there was also a blue light beneath the red light, which was also blinking, but mostly the blue light, light was steady. And it's just possible that the, you know, the waving of branches and leaves and trees kind of like them out, get in the forth. way and kind of yeah. like, create the illusion that it's blinking, but that's more of what it probably was. But there was just something about this whole thing that wasn't making sense. Um, There were no flights scheduled in the area at that time. And there was no apparent smoke or smell of smoke, just a glowing white yellowish dome light. So Jim then asked the two law enforcement officers if they heard an explosion because naturally there's a fire. There's got to be some type of crash. And Burroughs immediately, you know, remember he's super hyped up right now. He's just like, no. And Stefan's answer. And <laughs> Penison is annoyed with this dude. I would be he's, too. Yeah. He's just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not dealing with you. And Shut up, A1C. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Drop down and give me 50 A1C. I'm annoyed. Uh, But Steffens answered like a little more calmly and said, no, Jim, there was no explosion and no crash. It landed. Hmm. And how could that possibly be? Jim thought there was no way an aircraft could have landed safely in those woods. The woods are way too like you just can't land an aircraft in the woods. So the fact that he said it landed just did not make any sense to him. Weather and balloons.
4: I'm going to say it was a weather balloon. Can I say that right off the get-go?
5: <laughs> no, Shane, you idiot. It was swamp <laughs> gas. God damn Jeez. it. I missed that whole thing.
6: You are so stupid. Uh, <sighs> you're both wrong. It was a horned owl. Stupid piece of shit.
5: God, so sorry, guys. It was just a horny guy.
8: <laughs>
5: um. So he asked, like, okay, if it landed, then was it a helicopter maybe? And Burroughs excited and agitated. He took a big deep breath because I think like, okay, I'm not getting across here. I'm <laughs> just acting like a lunatic. I'm not making myself uh, I'm acting like a 20 year old. I yeah. need to stop. So he takes he Burroughs just takes a deep breath and he says Staff Sergeant Penniston there was no crash. It landed. There was no explosion. And then Penniston asked Burroughs while he was trying to tell him and Burroughs answered back that I think a UFO just landed over there in the forest. And obviously Jim Penniston is blown away with what he's just told and not blown away. Like, oh my God, a UFO. He's blown away. Like, are you holy fucking shit? You stupid idiot. Like, yeah. I mean, He's, how do you
4: process that information? I would be yeah. so you know? fucking
6: mad at that very yeah, second. Yeah, if yeah. I was Jim Penniston and I just got called away from fucking lunch or dinner M- or whatever. Loaf
4: on Christmas day. Cause
6: some yeah, it's 20 Chris- year
5: old dipshit said he saw a UFO. Oh, yeah. It's Christmas night. So he basically thought John Burroughs was losing his mind. Like 100% John Burroughs is losing his mind. So he looked over to Bud Steffens, um, who was clearly, I mean, he's the superior guy in this whole thing and he's acting way more mature in this situation, but he's definitely disturbed as well. What they're seeing because what they're seeing doesn't make sense in their rational minds in what they can explain,
8: hmm.
5: you know, to this and Burroughs or uh, Bud Steffens didn't say anything, but just kind of shook his head in agreement with what Burroughs said to, uh, Penniston, he, he, he's you know, Jim Penniston just doesn't know what to think right now. Like, all he, you know, Stephens agreed with a nod. So, however, unlikely all this information was, uh, Jim Penniston decided that this matter was no longer a police matter and they were now dealing with some sort of a security matter because, you know, is it a classified? Uh, aircraft that wasn't going to be scheduled for a flight like is not on any books like so he kind of thinks that he's uh, dealing with a highly classified matter at this point
4: well and can I just say too? and you're also we covered this before but you're still dealing in the A's. You're dealing with you know relationships that we have not had this confident in other countries. When you are in the military or on that side and you see these things, I mean that's running through your head. You don't know what these other countries are doing. You're in a foreign country as it is, being you yeah. know sub base type thing. You know, partnering and everything. There's just more to add to the story on how if you think. I mean, I know it sounds kind of weird, like oh maybe this is a secret spacecraft that nobody know or uh, an aircraft, but. It's kind of legitimate in this time frame because there was a lot of stuff going on. So who knows what the other side's doing, and who knows what the other side has? You know. Yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, it, and it could be yeah well, anything. It could literally be anything out there right now. And I think honestly, the logical thing is is there's some type of classified, highly classified thing that just crashed in the woods. I mean. That's that makes the most earthly sense. Very legitimate. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I mean, you're, you're in charge of the security forces on two United States air force bases. Like you need mm-hmm. to think radically, radically, logically, and rationally <laughs> combine those two words there. So Pennison decided to call master Sergeant JD Chandler at Sec- central security control. And, he, uh, Master Sergeant J.D. Chandler, was the overall flight chief for both of the bases, and the, ta- the time was now 12.15. So Jim picked up a direct line and soon realized all the important players were already on the line. Um, he asked, you know, Jim was going to call somebody else, and all of a sudden everybody kind of piped in, everybody that w- was important on that base and like, uh, don't worry, we're already, we're already on what's going on. So he began to tell everyone what he saw and what he had been told by the two law enforcement officers. And immediately the officers went into game mode. They were checking with radar towers, doing somebody did a quick inventory on any possible missing military craft, but everything was accounted for. There was nothing missing. There were no flights scheduled. So Staff Sergeant Coffey then came back on and reported that RAF Bodsey at Eastern Radar confirmed that they had triangulated, triangulated the radar sighting and that radar had been tracking an unidentified bogey or unidentified object about three miles out from Bentwaters, but had lost contact with it some 15 minutes or so prior when suddenly it disappeared, having dropped from radar imaging somewhere near the Woodbridge base, which hmm. is where where Rendlesham is right outside of. Right, right. So basically... With the strength of the radar to go off of and still thinking this could be like a high security risk, Jim Penniston was given orders ultimately from the base commander, Colonel uh, Theodore Conrad, uh, also known as Ted Conrad, to do a first response off base. And they then told him that he needed to choose one of the officers to take. So obviously he was going to take, I mean, I'll give you one guess who he wanted to take is bud <laughs> Stephens
4: right, right exactly
5: yeah um but as soon as he kind of looked uh towards Stephens i guess he was just like no no, no that's way. not gonna be the pick no way <laughs> under like under his breath too like just like nope not gonna do it not mm. gonna do it um, which
6: if that's true also makes a lot more sense as to why Stephens has never come forward and said anything about it. I was going to
4: say, Mm-mm. yeah, that might be Lynn. Kind of like when you're lined up to get picked on the dodgeball team and you're the last motherfucker to get pointed mm-hmm. at. Yeah, I don't think he would have said nothing after that whole thing. So, yeah.
5: Yeah. And so much to Jim Pennison's dismay, uh, Burroughs was more than happy and eager to go with him. Of
4: course like, he, he was. just like,
5: yeah, of course. Like He's like, yes, I want to go.
4: Like a jackrabbit. So
5: there's another guy that just arrived, actually, to um, the East Gate where they were, and his name is Airman Ed Cabinsag, and he mm-hmm. just arrived. So from the time that Penniston arrived at the East Gate to the time the makeshift team began their journey to the supposed crash site, that took no longer than 20 minutes. So now we have Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and Ed Cabinsag, about to make their journey to the supposed crash type uh, crash site. So they climbed in their CJ five Jeep, drove as far as they could into the woods before they had to abandon the vehicle because they just couldn't drive any further. So they out Jim Pennison grabbed a couple flashlights, gave one to Burroughs. He kept one for himself. Uh, He also grabbed a 35 millimeter film, which had film in it and put it in his pocket. And as they got closer and closer to the supposed crash site, they started having strong interference and signal failure problems with their radios. So Penison decided to make a relay uh, of sorts between the men. So we had three dudes. So basically Ed Cabin, Sag was going to stay the furthest.
4: Like and on then, the edge of the forest, right?
5: Where they yeah. Can, on the can edge of the forest out. within shouting range of burrows and event, you know, and eventually, Jim Pennison was going to be the one at the crash site. So he was going to yell to Burroughs, which Burroughs was going to yell to Ed Cabinsag. And then cabin sag where his radio was still working would then relay that message back to the base.
8: I
4: mean, and that that sounds dumb to a certain point, but that, that makes sense. If you don't know, don't trust your technology to a certain point, use good old fashioned yelling. I mean, if that's the thing, especially as, as dense as that force is and the things that were occurring and happening, I don't know. I think that was probably a good move to make, you know, operational-wise. I mean, like, uh,
6: it's like a bucket brigade for yeah. reporting intelligence. So very insecure and probably not going to get the original message back
5: exactly it, as said. But like the
6: telephone game? Effective.
5: <laughs> well, yeah. But I mean, when, you, when your technology isn't working and that's all you have to rely on. What else are you going to do, really? I mean,
4: nobody brought a string in a cup with nothing, them. So,
5: you know. Yeah. So as Pendleton and Burroughs advanced further into the tree line, they became aware of the air coming alive in some thick energy. They could just, like, feel the air. And both men said they experienced a distinct crackling and tingling sensation on and around them. They said their hair was standing up on their necks, and they could sense a very strong electromagnetic field around them. And for every step they got closer, their movement slowed as if they were walking through water that was chest deep, which is crazy. Somehow they were just yeah. like fighting the God. the element somehow, and they struggled to move forward towards the light. And everything, be, excuse me, became more disoriented as if kind of what they were experiencing was some type of like time distortion. And as I got closer, the light was only getting brighter and it got so bright at times that like Jim had to squint his eyes as he was moving through the trees just to barely be able to see. Hmm. Um, But every once in a while, the light would dim and he could see like a little more clearly. So it was just like super bright dim, kind of little like somehow you're just like battling to try and get into this like lighted area in the forest like let me
4: ask you when you're finally gonna go, you know what? I'm gonna be the guy in the back. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't feel like I want to be the first one to see the lights. I mean that's a lot of but then again if you've never seen it and you're I I don't know. That's very
6: yeah, that's very interesting. It's crazy. I'm team yeah. Steffens in that regard from the <laughs> beginning. I would have been like I'll be the guy at the back. Yeah, I'll, I'm not I'll, be, going.
5: I'll be at the Jeep. You guys uh you guys move on. Good, good, good on you. Oh, you. man. You guys are so brave.
4: <laughs> you guys are so freaking brave. Let me, let me pinch your <laughs> chest. You guys are awesome.
5: <laughs> yeah. So Penison could see that inside the effervescent white, yellowish blur that was lighting up the forest were definite distinct colors, red, orange, and blue mostly. And these lights would be steady for a few seconds and would then move and blink. At other times the lights would appear to merge together as one lighting up the whole forest. All the while, he noticed that the forest was absolutely silent. But the silence would not last, though. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the forest burst alive with sounds and activity. The deer were screeching, and the flapping of the bird's wings was at an almost deafening pitch, and it seemed as if all the animals and birds were going in the opposite direction of the soldiers and hightailing it as far away from the landing site as possible.
4: So if I can make a quick note – and we're going to have this actually on part two where we kind of dissect the other side. But there was also other reports that were recorded that uh, they specifically talked about farm animals just going crazy. Like, you know, because if you're looking at where the bases are, how it's described, you know, you have your two twin bases. But there's nothing but farmland surrounding them. And Mm -hmm. they were on that, that forest edge line. They could easily hear that, and and it was very succinct. Where there's multiple reports of, God, you know the the farm animals are going crazy. You know they, they just I've never heard them stirred up like that before. Um, you know, and these guys are they're on the base and they probably hear that on their patrols on a daily basis. So to them, it probably did sound like
5: it was a little out of space for them. You know. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Um, <clears throat> so now the time was exactly one in the morning and the men were now just a mere 50 yards away from their target and an advantage position to now be, to now be able to see the target more clearly. And inside the white yellowish dome, they could now see there was an actual object in the clearing and that it had to be mechanical. I mm. can't imagine that. No, I can't imagine that. No, me neither. I don't, I don't get that. So Penniston said that Burroughs was just jabbering his words he was just jabbering on about how no fucking way this was a downed aircraft. No fucking way this was a downed aircraft. And that only served to just annoy the fuck out of Penniston even more. And he still thought, okay, Burroughs is losing it. Well, so doesn't, move- it doesn't help the situation. That's a problem. Yeah. You, you got this like, asshole
4: dude. over here just going crazy, you know, and you're trying yeah. to figure out, assess your situation. It, it mm-hmm. can't help.
5: Yeah. So, as they moved forward, the light dimmed, and there was kind of a gray, yellowish white bubble around what appeared to be a dark mechanical craft. And it became apparent very quickly that there had been no aircraft that had crashed in this area. There wasn't any fire, there was no debris, no bodies, no smoke or smell of anything burning. And now, by this point, Jim has completely dismissed the notion that an aircraft had crashed there. Like, there's just. There's nothing. Uh, there's this is definitely not an air crash. So now he was just about twenty feet away and there was clearly an object surrounded by just a bunch of light again. I mean there's so much light they they're constantly saying, you know, saying this is like dirty, gray, white bubble mm-hmm. of light. Mm-hmm. Dirty because it looked like there was something darker black in the center of it.
4: Yeah. That um God, the plot gets thicker. So we're going to play another clip uh, with Panistan kind of describing what this looks like. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and and finish this encounter. It it gets deeper in the woods, if I must say, past this. Um, Yeah, damn. You know, just just amazing. So stand by,
8: guys.
7: The craft was a triangular craft. It was uh, 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 black in color, very shiny. Uh, It was metal, but it was smooth as glass. Uh, uh, inside the fabric of this triangular craft uh, there was a uh, light movement of red and blue running through the fabric of it. I had pasted off and it measured nine feet by nine feet by nine feet. Uh, it was approximately, uh, based on my height, I'm six foot two, so I estimated it at uh, seven feet tall. Uh, it was uh, uh, very small for uh, for aircraft um, It um, uh, Had one of the things that I was looking at initially whether it was I was looking for um, uh, Obvious things that aircraft have Looking for landing gear looking for intake looking for exhaust looking for crew compartment looking for windows It was void of all those
3: Elijah, are you ready to bring on the weird?
1: Yes, will I am. Are you ready to bring on the weird?
3: Did you did you just make a will I am joke? Uh yeah I did. <laughs> nice. I'll allow it. Anyway, we're just a couple of harmless guys digging into weird things we don't know much about.
1: We're just trying to figure out what the hell is happening in the world outside our homes. Do we get things wrong? Without a doubt.
3: Are we learning from those mistakes?
1: Not anytime soon.
3: Are you entertained by the crap we're talking about?
1: Of course, that's why I always listen to the show.
3: You listen? Alright, wh- what do you like to listen to about the show?
1: I like aliens, conspiracies, cryptids, NWO, shadow government, you name
3: it. What? But, oh, Hold on. Do the aliens come from inside the earth instead of interstellar travel? What made the conspiracy start? Why did that cryptid evolve to do the things it does? Who runs this NWO?
1: Listen in as we dive into all manners of subjects as we bring on the weird.
3: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. You can listen to clips of our episodes on our YouTube channel.
1: Listen, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser.com. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So, Jim thought that the craft could actually
5: sense his presence. And he said once he, he felt that it could sense his presence... it. Presence. It let out like a bright flash of bluish white light, which he said whited out his entire view, and he thought this thing was going to explode. And this whole experience that he has with this craft, the whole time he's like, "This thing's, this thing's going to explode." So he hits the deck because he's like embrace. He's like expecting an explosion, and he's kind of behind a berm, so kind of that classic military behind a berm, you know, cover and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (sighs) But nothing happened. I mean, it was just a burst of bright light, but there was no explosion. There was no trauma. He was fine. There was, you know, no debris of any kind. And kind of just as soon as that flash came, it equally dissipated. Um, now, and I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead
4: real quick. So he, I mean, of course you're, you're taken out of the book. Um, that little release of what you – well, actually, I'm jumping ahead of game. I apologize. Go ahead and finish where you're going. I've got a question soon after, though, once you kind of get past
5: this little – Well, I mean, line. you can – so basically, he's walking up to this thing, but there's still like this – what he describes as like a energy force field around it. Um, he also describes it as the sphere of influence. But as he walks into this – kind of area of light and everything things to be uh, become like a lot clear because by this point it's, it's just a lot of light, but you can kind of tell that something's in there, but you, it, it, nothing's clear. You know, it's kind of like you're not wearing glasses and it's like, yeah, I can kind of tell some stuff's going on there, but, um, but one, one, once he finally gets in this, everything is clear Um, and it looked, it kind of seemed to him that the craft was acting as like a distortion of some type, Hmm. but once he was fully engulfed in the light, things were clear and distinct and the colors more vibrant. And he said, there's just like the darkest blacks. And then he saw what appeared to be a fully intact black triangular streamlined craft and Jim says he witnessed distinct circular and pie shaped lights that were blinking on and off and moving sequentially just under the black, shiny surface and around the craft, like a digital display. He realized then that where he was standing was void of all sta- sound. The forest was still, hmm. there were no rustling of branches or twigs breaking under his feet, no animals rustling in the distance, nothing just complete silence. So the steady and dominant light began to weaken, and the craft was becoming even more pronounced. And Jim says that, "quote I was mesmerized by the color, I was mesmerized by the colored blobs of blue, yellow, orange, and red lights, mostly orange, which all varied in size and shape. Some were six inches in diameter, while others would grow as large as twelve inches." Wow. But these blobs would merge into each other before slowly fading away again, as if melting back into the molded fabric of the craft. For example, the bluish blobs of light would emerge from the black exterior, beginning with a bluish gray and then would change smoothly to a brilliant blue, while other blobs of color would as last longer and would change shape. He also said that the craft was very smooth and curved. It seemed to have been created as if like from a single mold, the It was shiny, black, opaque skin, was smooth like glass and reflected the surrounding forest like a dark mirror.
6: It's funny, like you hear the created from a single mold about a lot of UFO stuff. Um, like uh, Bob Lazar say. talked about that also uh, from the things he saw in the hangars at Area 51. And also, that's how the Nautilus is described in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> it's a really good. <laughs> so, really. Just
4: thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. Ah, that's a nice little, oh, there you go. But no, you, but you're right on the Bob Lazar and everything. A lot of reports are when they have this open report that they can see that, like, there's no seams, there's no rivets, there's no nothing, there's no way. It's just one
5: piece. Yeah, it's just one thing. Odd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what he described is basically a black triangle, nine feet by nine feet by nine feet, with like kind of like a little weird dome on it or something. But all of a sudden, he realizes that he grabbed a camera. So, when remember when he left the Jeep? Yeah. Yeah. He grabbed two flashlights and he grabbed a 35 millimeter camera. And that that camera had, he said, thirty six black and white monochrome photos. So he stood back and just started taking pictures of this thing. But Jim Penniston says that when his eye was up at the viewer, he was just kind of really nervous because he kind of felt vulnerable because, like, his attention wasn't—he wasn't able to look at his surroundings anymore. Like he was, like it, it was just focused on this viewer. So he just basically snapped every single picture right there before there. There were a lot of things that once he began to investigate further, he was going to be bummed that he didn't take pictures of. I I get
6: that intense feeling of fear right there though, especially like blocking out your field of vision, except for a, a very small frame of it. Like, you're experiencing something completely unknown. You're already focusing on it so hard that your, your field of vision is, is kind of narrow anyway. Like I, I totally understand all of, all of that and why you would do that. Like just be like,
8: a lot of witnesses say that though,
4: is the thing. A lot of them do. I mean, could you imagine if you're in that situation, you know, it's very, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, you're taking,
5: you're taking your view to a two centimeter, why uh, wide yeah. thing, you know, yeah. like right there when.
4: Now I did try to re- on some of the research that I was doing on my side because I stumbled across that, that there were pictures taken, you know, alas, I couldn't find anything. There was nothing really out there um, other than what we'll play here in the future, which I thought was amazing in itself. But I, um, yeah, kind of a bummer if that's the case. And I'm sure that even if those pictures were taken, that camera wasn't owned by him. I'm sure it was a military camera. Well, you know, yeah, and et cetera, et cetera. it kind of
5: it kind of goes. He talks about that. He goes to get them developed, and when he gets them back, all the the pictures didn't take. Like it was just there's nothing nothing that took, and he kind of says like oh, I was probably radiation messing with the film or something like that.
8: Well, um, or he took them just he, like he, my he,
5: what?
4: Or he took him just like my mom took them. She'd get everything lined up and everybody would stand still. And then the minute she'd click it, she'd move the camera. Like, say cheese. Every fucking picture of my family
5: is a blur. Yeah. Every well, one. forgot to take the lens cap off.
6: <laughs> that, too.
5: <laughs> yeah, so he he did develop, try and develop these. And, I mean, it just didn't pan out ah, one way or the other. And, I, I mean, I, I remember taking pictures with actual film and, you know, you'd get your roll, and half of them would be just, like, nothing. Yeah. So that's pretty that's a pretty big bummer but you know and it's just typical of UFO stories that nothing on the camera like no pictures were able to be recovered. But so uh, he he blasts all these pictures and he starts investigating this craft that he's seen. And I mean he's still not thinking he's still not thinking that this is like an alien spacecraft like so he's he's trying to investigate and he's taking notes and because he is security he's he's trying to obtain a, as much information as he possibly can about what he's seen and what he is seeing is there's no way that this thing could have landed in there because the trees are super close together there's like a, it's in a little clearing but nothing can like really land in there um, he's not noticing any engine or propulsion unit. He's looking for access ports, or ports or a crew compartment or a cockpit or anything like that. But he couldn't see any of that or anything that resembled any of those things. There were no visible handles, seams, rivets, sharp angles on the craft. It was void of windows, flaps, a horizontal stabilizer, vertical stabilizer, rudder. And it made sense to him that this had to be some type of drone. After he was just noticing all of this stuff, like there's there's no way that uh, anybody could be in here um, because it did seem so small to him, and he he figured his stride was about three feet, so he walked the perimeter of the craft and kind of realized it. Like you heard in that clip, that it was nine feet by nine feet by nine feet, and he was making all of these measurements by like. Off his, rough. off
4: his measurements, kind of too. Yeah, you know? yeah, they're rough yeah. measurements,
5: but right. you know, the, I think it's a good ballpark. He's six two, so he figured the craft was about seven to eight feet tall. Oh, he he also ran his hand along the the craft, and he said it was warm to the touch, and he could feel like this low energy just vibrating in his body as he was touching this thing,
6: like touching a Tesla uh, ball or whatever those are.
5: Kinda, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, he just said it was like he could feel a continual flow of low voltage electricity running through his hands and moving to his forearms. So kind of, I guess, kind of like that. And he says the camera's been put away and he tried to actually rock the thing, too. So he, he freed up <laughs> both his hands and he tried to push it. But the thing, I guess, was just solid. If this spaceship's a rockin', don't come a knocking. Don't come a knocking. Yeah, he also said it felt like the energy was dancing on him. Mm, wow. Uh, he looks so he's covered the perimeter. He looks underneath and he notices that there's three indentions in the ground. Like significant indentions. But it doesn't it looks like it's hovering. But then he notices that it seems like the craft is there's lasers coming out of, there's like beams of light coming out of uh, all three corners of the craft. And somehow there's indentions right there. And the craft seems to kind of be heavy if it's going to be making those indentions, but it's just hovering on these thin beams of light that he's seen underneath the craft.
4: Well, and there's other reports too, that, um, that, and there's other witnesses, not just Penniston that went out there and said that they did see triangular indentions in The area where they saw that, which was, you know, inch and a half to three and a half inches in the ground, kind of in the same pattern from the same reports. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people did the sketch and drew that up. So, I mean, that's something that's legitimate and was verified in other sources. So, I, I don't know.
5: Yeah. As he gives, so he's, he's seeing these lasers or beams of light from the bottom. He looks up, he keeps inspecting and all of a sudden he sees these lack of a better term, like hieroglyphics on the side of this craft. And so finally he's like, okay, thank God there's some type of inscription on this. That's going to say us air force, or it's going to say something that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He was even like, you know, I hope there's a hammer and sickle, like just any, any type of marking, but what he saw, there was, there was no marking, that he saw that made sense to him. Like none of those marks correlated with anything from any earthly air force. Hmm. Um, and describing them, it's kind of like an ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic, but that's just because he doesn't know how to, uh, describe what he's seen. So whenever, whenever I picture them,
6: I, I think of like, uh, the way that they show writing and like the star Wars universe or like predator when he like hits his fucking down shit on his wrist. Mm-hmm. And it's all like angular runic type things that I don't know. That's what it always looks like in my mind.
5: Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, they, they look pretty crazy. So he was kind of like touching them and figuring it out. And there's, there were six symbols, five little ones or five on the bottom. And then there was like a bigger circular triangular type of shape and Jim says of the experience I had activated a technology that through light was able to communicate a message to me in ones and zeros and in seconds I know today that while I was receiving the ones and zeros I was also made aware of the message but this was obviously communicated and stored at a subliminal level as quickly as it started the transmission simply stopped and was over the whole thing lasted no more than a minute. Unable to pull my hand back when it first began, I finally felt the large circle triangle symbol release it. And that is that's So he, he
4: basically got downloaded. And this was something that I, I researched a little bit. Um, I don't know if he released this originally, but he did after the fact that he, it was a he got downloaded a binary code yeah. that he can't explain. You know, now whether it was there when the event happened or after the fact, I think the one that I caught was uh, it was a 30 year anniversary, um, and he was finally kind of releasing some of the ins and outs of what was really close to him. He may mm-hmm. release it before that, but I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's crazy. I uh, yeah.
5: And he uh, once that happened, once this whole thing was over for him, this whole uh, firsthand experience was over. He went home, and when he would dream. For a week straight, every time he would dream, it would just be one zero one zero, like a pattern of of those. Hmm. And he started to feel crazy, and that's when he started writing these down. Is because he's like, This keeps happening. I need to write these down. Document and document, document what, somehow, yeah. Yeah, document what was going on. But after after his hand was released, he didn't pull it away, it was released. He had had enough. He was over it. That's he. He had all the evidence that he needed and he was like, okay, all right. I just got blasted with light in my mind's eye, whatever the hell that is. And zeros and ones were blasting through my head. So he starts walking back and he thinks Burroughs has kind of gone AWOL, bounce, whatever. And as he's backing away, he kind of looked behind him and Burroughs is right there. So Burroughs has seen this whole thing, has witnessed this whole thing happen to Jim Penniston. And he was no more than like 10 feet behind him. And as they're backing away, the craft began to like, just move upwards. And it was just kind of like zigzagging through the trees, just straight up, straight up, straight up. Going super slow too. Like Jim said, that they could have caught the craft had they ran after it. Like had they yeah. ran after it, they could have like you like, know, like a kite that's just yeah. you know hanging out. Yeah, and it finally got about two hundred feet above the pine trees and whatever, and it just took off. There was no uh, there was no air displacement or anything. it's just like, boom, flash, blink of an eye, gone. And, so they're, I mean, they're just flabbergasted, and they, you know, their investigation is over, so they start walking, and then all of a sudden, Burroughs starts freaking out. It's like, oh my God, it's over there. It's over there. And, sure shit, they start chasing after it, and it was in the sky, and the same colors, and everything, but at some point, All of a sudden, they realized they were following that lighthouse. Jim Pennison realizes they're chasing the lighthouse all of a sudden. After they see this thing like 400 yards away, blinking and blinking and blinking, and then black. And he said, as soon as like every time they would get closer, it would move again. But then it all of a sudden turned into that lighthouse.
4: Wasn't like the, it was called the the Rook Forward or something like that. Lighthouse
5: is set out on the, um, the Orford Orfordness Orford. yeah. Lighthouse. Yeah. Uh so he uh Jim finally gets back. His their radios are working now. Everything's going on, so he calls his superiors, and their superiors his superiors were just asking if he was just foolishly investigating the Orfordness Lighthouse and Jim was pretty pissed about that. He was pretty like offended, like, uh, no lighthouses don't fly and they don't change shape into a black triangular craft. Like, I, yeah, that, that's
4: funny. Cause that's one of the theories that, that we, I'm going to, we'll talk about after the fact, but it was, they try to lump that in and I've got some notes on that on part two, but just very interesting how there's a lot of people
5: that push that, which I yeah. find funny, you know? Yeah. And it, so, and, and it is funny actually that by the end of this, they were chasing that lighthouse. Right. Right.
4: Yeah. it's fucking crazy.
5: Ah, it somehow morphed into that. And so they finally made it back to the Jeep and Ed cabin sag was there and they had all had a night. They just drove back to the base in silence. They went back home. Um, And that is that is night one. And they before they went back to the base, didn't they revisit the landing
6: site and see that there were three indentations where the craft had been?
5: Yes, that is right. Yeah. Uh, Pennison and Burroughs did visit the landing site again. And Burroughs and Pennison both saw that there were indentations in there and they thought it's better to come back at night to see or during daylight. To see if there's any get, get you know marks on the trees right, or right. anything like that, and there were marks on the trees. They came back and they did see indentations in the ground, so that area had been disturbed by something. Oh,
4: absolutely, and I th- and again, you know, we're focusing really on Burrows and Penniston along with some of their you know characters in the, in the game, but um, other people saw that as well, and other people recorded that and documented that as well too. So. It's very interesting there, how that how that plays yeah,
5: out. there's a lot of players that I'm leaving out kind of mm-hmm. because they're not I don't think they're crucial to the actual story. sure. And the more and more you talk about these names, the more drier the story gets kind of. And I mean if you really want to know the ins and outs, read the Rendlesham Enigma or something, but you're gonna forget the names anyway. And if I just (laughs) blast everyone with like Messer Sergeant this guy, Staff Sergeant this, you're just gonna, you're not gonna remember anyway. And they're not vital to the actual, the meat and potatoes of the story.
4: Yeah, there there were some key players, and I think you hit the key players well. Um, do you do are we ready to play some finalized clips and go into some some just roundabouts, or is there any more on that first night you want to cover?
5: Well, I mean, I just want to say that this. Case to me is credible because of the notes that Jim Penniston took that night. So his camera footage that he took, the photos didn't come out, you know, whatever, but he did take detailed notes and some of these notes are, he still has this notebook to this day and these are handwritten notes. And I don't know. I just kind of wanted to read some of them to kind of give the impression that he did see something like this is something that he definitely saw. So in his notebook, he, he wrote larger, white light, slowing, high intensity, white, blue, and red skin of skin of craft fabric, black, smooth, glass, like surface, unknown identity, unknown high electric static on clothes, skin, hair type of aircraft, unknown, No apparent landing gear, no sound, but appears operational somehow. Aircraft is unknown, cannot identify propulsion unknown. Size, nine feet long, approximately seven to eight feet high. Skin fabric of craft warm. Very warm to touch, identifying markings on left front side. Approximately three inches, symbol length and about two feet long. Symbols etched or engraved, language unknown. Um, And, I mean, it's just... The, this is written in just a tiny little police handbook. Liftoff, 245, no sound, no air disturbance, no other identified markings. Takeoff, unknown speed, impossible. Um, Crazy.
4: Just absolutely crazy. Um, We got one last clip clip with Penniston where he kind of wraps up how he feels about it. Uh, and then I, I think we want to talk about part two a little bit. Guys, if, if you want, I mean, it's just a story. And again, this is one night and this is one of just how things unfold. And not only that, but one of those, when you heard the intro that we played in the very beginning, when John read and kind of set up the ambiance, we went into it. It wasn't just them seeing this thing. There were other villagers outside that witnessed things similar. The, the problem was there was really no documentation on their side as credible as it was on the basis. And I think that really has a big part to play.
7: Uh, I think I, I agree with that the, the human race would probably experience the same type of feelings I have. Uh, but I think one of the things that I, I hadn't mentioned is, uh, is probably denial. Is one of the, also the feelings you're feeling. Well, this can't be what I think it could be. I think that's part of what's going on there. And, uh, because, you know, we're rational people. We wanna, we want rational answers, especially In that position I was in, I mean, what we had on that base, in those twin bases, largest tactical fighter wing in the United States Air Force. It felt sort of complete. You know, it felt like we're, it was okay. And then when it took off, there was an absence of that feeling. Ah.
4: Yeah, that's kind of crazy how he. There's a really big emotional thing there for him. And and I think maybe a lot of that is just the physical contact he had with the, with aircraft itself. You
5: know, there had to have been something that happened there. I feel. Yeah. And that's the thing. I know we're going to get into Nick Redfern's uh, theory, which is, I mean, interesting. And he's put a lot of time into it. And I guess there's probably things that make sense to it for sure but Nick Redfern's also on record as saying that he doesn't think Jim Penniston or John Burroughs is lying about anything. He's like, no, they're 100% saying what they thought, but I don't know. Maybe it's I, and I haven't read his book at all, but, and maybe it's just me, but Jim Penniston seems like a pretty straight laced straight shooter guy that didn't really want any of this attention and didn't want this, Anyway, Like he wanted just a good air, a career in the Air Force and, you know, live his life.
4: Well, I, I feel John Burroughs is kind of similar too, though. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was just – and and again, we're, we're going to get into it. It was really not only the theories behind of what people think of really what occurred that night, whether it's what, you know, Jim Pendison's firsthand accounts are or John Burroughs or whatever have you, but there's other things that play Everything from you know missing files to dates that are wrong to like there there's a little there's a bunch of stuff that make this it makes the skeptics look even more skeptical into what this looks like which mm-hmm. you know is sad in itself. Um, one thing we're gonna tease with and the John we'll let you wrap it up on your side but there's one thing on the second night I believe correct it was a halt tapes where they actually had uh, they said hey something happened the night prior we're going to go out there and record this because we're seeing the same thing again, and this is going to occur.
5: Yeah, so the second night, I believe there's officers having a party, and the lights are back, and this is where things get really muddy on what actually happened because people's stories aren't lining up, Um, and Colonel Halt wasn't necessarily even supposed to be out there. Yeah. Um, right. But he kind of invited himself, and we have his tapes to thank for that. But uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away because that will be in the next episode. But we'll, we're going to get into day two and day three, or night two and three of of the Rendlesham Forest incident.
4: Yeah, for sure. Um, we're going to play a quick little teaser clip on the halt tapes, which again it's like 24 minutes of tape that he. Yeah, again, wasn't supposed to be out there. Really, wasn't supposed to be recording. But, but there's a lot of lot of things in the weeds, and that's where we're going to lead on to part two. So, let's play that real quick, and then we'll do wrap up. Zero three
8: fifteen. Now we've got an object about ten degrees directly south. Have to off the horizon left. And once the north are moving, once moving away from us, moving, moving, just move not fast. One on the right, two away, too. Yeah, we're both heading north. Okay. Hey, here, here, he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now yeah. we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. 3:30, 0-3.30 0330, and the objects are
2: still in the sky. Although the one to the south looks like it's losing a little bit of altitude, we're turning run heading
8: back toward uh, the base. The object, is, uh, the object to the
2: side the object to the south, is still beaming down lights to the ground. Over 400 hours, one object still hovering over Woodbridge Base
8: at about 5 to 10 degrees off the horizon. Still moving erratic and similar lights in gaming darkness of failure.
5: <clears throat> yeah. Stand by Crazy. for that mess. Yeah. Crazy. Um, Man. I don't know. The fact that Jim Pennison touched the craft. <laughs> that blows that just, my mind. I don't know.
4: You, you there, you know, and the thing is, they, you know, what's funny? They talk about, oh yeah, this is big as Roswell. No, Roswell wasn't this big. I mean, it was this big in the United States. Yeah, it was reported, but it wasn't something that was seen, was felt, was reported on, was witnessed. It, it wasn't anything to that extent. This is on mm-hmm. another level altogether, in my personal opinion.
5: But I, you know, that's just me. Well, it's definitely on another level. I'm honestly kind of over Roswell.
4: <laughs> yeah no as weird it as it that tough. sounds
5: i'm just like yeah. uh like we're never gonna get a straight answer there's always gonna be this or that so i'm, I'm just roswell is roswell and I, I think ufology in general should just move on with their lives kind of i don't know maybe <laughs> that's a bad way to look at it but No, it's fair. There's got to be some more important things we can be looking at.
4: It's fair, and I think in this day and age too, you know, it kind of sometimes this whole UFO research puts a bitter taste in your mouth because of the different people doing it. Um, But you know, where Rendlesham kind of stands apart is the time frame that it happened, the area it happened, uh, a lot of the other factors that surround it. uh, Just kind of a yeah, now kind of amazing. John, appreciate you putting your work in. You have
6: fairly credible witnesses, also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Whereas with Uh, With Roswell, you don't really have that. You have uh, Jesse Martell saying what he thought it was and then either changing his story or being replaced by somebody else that said it was something else and and never really getting to the bottom of it. You know what I mean? Whereas here, in this case, you do have credible witnesses and I think that is kind of important.
5: Well, and... I've taken hallucinogenics. I've taken acid. I've taken mushrooms. Uh, I did salvia once, which sucked. But like, the, I and I mean, I know I'm taking those. But I swear to God, if somebody like if I was uh, if I was dosed with LSD or something similar to LSD, and I came down, I would know that I was just on a, a drug of some sort. Right. You know what I mean? So, like the the theory that these guys were all on psychoactive drugs and everything that's psychotropic a, yeah, tropic drugs, like that just ever. doesn't that just doesn't check out to me. And I mean, I'm well, open. I'm open to the the hypothesis. I, I mean, like, what do I know? Like, but it just I doesn't mean, seem like. I feel like you'd go, oh, "Holy shit!" That was let's let's save that for. Part two, the next, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for what's coming there are, up, but, yeah, there
6: are some theories. To rebuttal, real quick, uh, if you had never knowingly taken any of those psychotropic drugs, thank you. Uh, coming down from them, would you know that's what it was, or would you think you were just like, man, my adrenaline was really pumping, and that shit was super weird, and I'm kind of like fucking beaten, fucked up now. <laughs>
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. not not to play the devil's advocate, but you got a point because you know, it's so not mm-hmm. one of those things where you physically know you took the drug and now you're waiting for something. If you were drugged and you didn't know you were drugged and you never have been, that's a completely different
5: thing on yeah. its own. Uh, and and again, but, amongst other theories, but That is know. a really good point though. So
6: I will say this though. I really do want like Spielberg or like JJ Abrams or somebody to make to a remake movie this. about this shit. it'd <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, be so cool, a, dude.
4: Yeah, no, it would be awesome. It would have to be a miniseries of some sort. I don't think they could wrap it up in a two and a half hour
6: time it'll, frame. It'll be on amazing stories on Apple TV, so I'll never see it.
4: <laughs> oh shit, that's right. Apple TV does have amazing stories. I'd love that show in the eighties. Yeah. Oh well. Teach your own. But that's that's awesome. I mean I John, thank you for your work on it. Um, you know, there's more to come and, and again I think that the second half of this is just uh we're gonna go into plausibilities, theories. What are the people are saying? What are the people are debunking? Some people that came out to say, yep, I saw that. And they got completely disproven that that's fucking not what they saw. Like there's a whole nother basket of apples over here that we're going to kind of open up for you guys. Um, So hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, if you have any recommendations for anything that you want to write into, topics, anything to that point, you can write us at, at gmail.com. If you have a story or a tale to tell, which we love and we've got a couple kind of on standby, you can call us at 801 252 69 Call us 45 and you can let us know Uh, it covers in three minutes. If it goes over that, call us back. I'll splice them together. Um, You know, we're always, always welcome to hear stories and whatever have you. You can find us on all social platforms and all podcast platforms. Um, Josh, John, you got everything else for Patreon, et cetera, et
6: cetera. Uh, Patreon.com slash strange uncles. Give us your money. Uh, (laughs) There's bonus content galore. Um, depending on what tier you decide to join at, uh, that depends on what access you get to said bonus content, but everybody gets a little something, something, Mm -hmm. um, and check out the YouTube channel. We're trying to, uh, grow that, um, let us know what you think, if you think it's worth the time. Um, and that's about all I have.
5: Also, yeah. Uh, rate and subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, definitely. Because it creates visibility and helps us move up in the rankings.
4: Definitely. And, you know, when Josh was talking about uh, Patreon, for example, you know, I will tell you guys that all you listeners out there, there's no time that I I personally, and I know you guys are the same way, we don't find a benefit to if we're somewhere and we happen to stumble on something weird that we're going to try to record it or try to do something with it so it can be out there for Patreon listeners. Um, you know, John, you did your hiking trip last weekend. Josephine Josephine, and I did one a couple weekends ago. We went to Zion and just so happened to run into this really cool Haunted Cabin story. I recorded it. It's on video. I'm editing it now, and that will be up on Patreon. So we really love this shit, and we really try, no matter what we're doing. You know, if we stumble on something that might be halfway titillating, we throw it your guys' way. So hopefully you enjoy that, and hopefully you appreciate that. But um, that's all I have on my side, John. Thanks for the work, man. So...
5: You're welcome. There's more work to come. By all means, so. <laughs> we've we've literally we've literally just scratched the surface on this story. Like this isn't even uh. so <laughs> just throw the book up. That's how you get. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. We've made it to page seventy-five, people. Yeah,
4: I'm glad I ordered the three forty-page book and not what you ordered. That's just insane
5: like it's you know. yeah like literally this this is as far as we've got <laughs> so if, if you're watching this on video we've got to page 76 out of like a 700 page book so yeah Crazy. we're it's definitely not going to be able there. to get to all of it and i i'll try and not be so long-winded but yeah
4: no but i think we'll do it justice and so we appreciate it hopefully you guys stay safe stay stay healthy uh be nice to one another most
5: importantly wear a fucking mask
4: Jesus. Yeah, try to, try to be halfway resemblance of doing something decent. You know, that would help. And a mask starts, definitely. It's not hard. Nope, not at all. So anyway, thanks, guys. Good partying with you. Close
1: the gates. You've been listening to a fourth-hand production. This is a fourth-hand production. <laughs>
2: story in the news today.
5: You believe in ghosts and the paranormal?
3: Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental, I don't uh, know, planes yeah. that they're building?
2: And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts.
3: Weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways.
4: And welcome to Strange Uncles, I'm Shane. I'm John.
6: I'm Colonel Conrad. Because <laughs> I don't give a fuck.
8: Yeah, I've Lies. Evidently, really... <laughs> I <I've never laughs> didn't
4: fucking either. Yeah, no shit. So welcome everybody, welcome to Strange Uncles. Uh, thanks for joining us yet again. Um, I guess I don't know, how was your guys' is Fourth of July? This is gonna drop later, but uh we just had Fourth of July weekend where everybody tried to catch the entire nation on fire.
1: Lovely. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I'm surprised my friend's uh neighborhood didn't burn to the ground. It was complete anarchy. Mm. I've never seen so many personal fireworks be lit up.
6: Was that over in the Glendale Hood?
5: Yeah. But yeah. now and now aerials are legal in Utah. So, I mean, it was just, it was insane. It was like two, three hours of nonstop, just I don't get it. I I, I just took a little bit of acid. So I was like, Oh man, (laughs) I want this to stop. (laughs) This isn't working right.
6: (laughs) That neighborhood's always like a war zone on the fourth and the 24th. It's it's, which uh, I used to think was fun, but now it bugs the shit out of me. I think (laughs) it was
5: like that all across the Valley. I saw some people posting like, is every other neighborhood just? It seemed like every single person had bought at least four to five hundred dollars worth of aerial fireworks.
6: It's what they spent the stimulus money on, I guess. Yeah,
5: yeah. Exactly. Well, and it's kind of crazy. I didn't even think that no one's going to the park. You know, usually there's thousands of people that go to different various parks to watch the fireworks, and now everyone is home and everyone is lighting off fireworks. Which I don't see much of celebrating Fourth of July this year.
4: <laughs> no, place, thank but... you. Any
5: year, honestly. You yeah. know what?
4: I never got the 4th of July. I, I I, mean, okay, I get it. But you do it in the middle of fucking summer and with fireworks and especially us over here in this area, Montana, Washington State, you, all you're doing is setting shit on fire. Like it just, it's just, I never understood it. Never understood it.
5: I was for sure thinking that there was a house about to be lit on fire in my friend's neighborhood. I was like, there's no way a house isn't lighting on fire. It's but just ridiculous. It ended up good. I was like, man, now's the time to commit a crime because it is complete <laughs> chaos over here. <laughs> like
4: the day before Halloween. What is it? They call it the devil's night. Just go fucking crazy. So <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. funny. Well, you know, and like I said, I think um, I was actually was out of state. Uh, I was in Washington State visiting family and then kind of came back from Montana. Smaller town, so it really wasn't that big of a thing, but still the same thing. And then I was telling John before he started the podcast, we I saw the LA, the legal fireworks in LA go off and holy shit. It was crazy. Drone footage of just one thing after another, you know, just absolutely crazy.
5: How are fireworks even allowed in California? I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I guess everything's burnt. There's nothing else to burn. So they're like, fuck it. Yeah.
0: Nah, they
6: had a wet spring, man. Yeah,
5: For a hot two days. (laughs) I don't think wet enough.
4: Yeah, no, exactly. And then the whole Mount Rushmore thing, which we're not going to get into because we're trying to back off from grandstanding. However... A little upsetting. Anywho. anywho, Um Anyhook. We are – so, yeah, 4th of July was good. Um, we're back together like we left you guys before. Um, we covered part one of the Rendlesham incident, and John, again, has more diligently trying to do part two, which is what we're kind of going to go into. Uh, hopefully, you guys write us if you have any questions. Or uh, last episode, we really set up the first night, right, John? Like it was just – the initial
5: night was all it was. Yeah, it was the first night, and – Pretty arguably, the first night is the most important night. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, we, we just covered uh, what happened, the events leading up to, and the first night. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back to Rendlesham Part 1 and listen to that before this one. Yeah, most definitely. Or don't. See if well, I can.
4: Yeah, yeah, shit. You can do the last one if you want to. If you are going to be a rebel, you know, by all means. <laughs> um, with that being said, we're going to go into it. I will say though, I, I just I so I took Monday off, got back to work today for the first time, and my voice is very coarse trying to yell at contractors, so I might not be talking a lot. So I am talking more now than anything, which you know we'll we'll go from there. But know, uh, yeah, John, I'll let you run the gamut, and we're going to go ahead and play the intro, and we are going to roll into part two of the Reynoldsham Forest incident.
6: It was dubbed Britain's Roswell. The story goes that a number of US servicemen saw an alien spacecraft near their Air Force base in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk in 1980.
3: The events began on the evening of the 26th of December when a subborn resident in the local village reported a mysterious shape like an upturned mushroom in the sky above his garden. As they get closer to the lights, they realize it's not a crash. It's an aircraft, but unlike
2: any they've ever seen.
4: So, John, correct me if I'm wrong. We So, part one really led us with two main players, right? Two key role players that witnessed it, saw it. They're walking through what happened that night. Again, you know, Christmas uh, time frame, and then... We, I think we left it just you know, the fact that that was a first night that was saw. Now we're looking at what happened after the fact on the remaining days.
5: Yep. So the main people in, on the first night are John Burroughs, Airman First Class John Burroughs, and Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston. Um, there was another Sergeant Ed Cabinsag, but he was left at the Jeep on the dirt road to kind of perform the relay that I was talking about because the radios weren't working. We had left after the experience, after the whole night is done, and the three of them are driving back to the base. And Jim says that his complete worldview has just basically changed overnight in an instant. Um, that rocked his world pretty good. And as he got to the back to the base, he realized that his digital quartz watch was actually behind 45 minutes which he thought was unusual. Everybody's on the base was five. uh, It said it was five o'clock and his was 45 minutes behind, which he just says it's unusual because the battery was fine. It's a digital quartz. It shouldn't be off. So that's a little interesting, a little missing time as he got back there. Um, He also heard later that when he arrived back at the base, that there was probably about 80 different other personnel on the bases that saw the aircraft actually take off. Um, so I think that was kind of validating for him that, you know, he didn't just like lose his mind. So um, Penniston and Burroughs, they kind of lived together in kind of like the same neighborhood. I think Burroughs just lived right down the street from him. So they would carpool back and forth, despite Jim Penniston being severely annoyed with the young John Burroughs constantly. And it seems like Penniston kind of is annoyed with him throughout life <laughs> actually like I years later it's just like, he's just like oh my god
6: well like, on that documentary that i watched last night like they didn't really have peniston but they had burrows on a lot and this was shot right. in like 2014 i think yeah and yeah he was he said his watch was 45 minutes slow too like he said that they were both behind um mm-hmm. but also like it sounded like he wanted to get in contact with penniston to argue about what happened yeah like, th-
4: there was so volatile stuff there I could see that there. being annoying
6: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs>
4: and it's funny too you mentioned not to make a joke out of it but you know his digital quartz watch you know we know it's the 80s because you know that was the best timekeeping tool in the world back, back then in that yeah. day but it was something i mean it was something they both kind of made it to and and you know, I think I remember in the reviews that are not the book um, or not the reviews of book I read was they uh, they were talking about like sinking their watches and looking down and both like looking at each other going, damn, we're we're off. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not times not working how it should, you know, what we remember it to be. Yeah, kind of cool. So,
5: yeah, it's pretty strange. So as they're about to carpool home, Jim Pennison realizes that he's got the 35 millimeter film in his pocket and he's like, oh, I need to drop this off at the lab get these pictures developed because he took the entire roll of pitchers of the craft supposedly. And as they're heading out, Burroughs suggests that they go check out the landing site one more time in daylight. So they can actually possibly see, you know, a little better if there's indentations or, you know, whatever they might've seen the night previous and Penniston agrees. Like, you know, I think he wants to check it out. And at this time, it's about 8.20 in the morning when they reach the landing site again. And when they got there, they noticed the three large indentations on the ground. Um, and it was later discovered that all three of the indentations were 9.8 feet apart on all sides. And it formed a perfect equilateral triangle. And later on, they were able to determine that the object had to be about 7.5 to 8 tons. Oh, nice. No which Oof. seems... Crazy, Yeah, that's huge. And this is according to Jim Penniston. Uh, And they looked around. They said they noticed there were broken branches that looked like they happened on the landing and takeoff. Um, They noticed scorch marks that were facing inside in the clearing um, and kind of like burns and everything. So that definitely kind of sealed the deal to them that they did see or well, Jim Penniston at least saw a craft in this clearing and it did leave physical trace evidence of the encounter.
8: Hmm.
5: Hmm.
6: Close encounter of the second kind.
5: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, And uh, I have a little note here. So Colonel Halt, Later, he wanted to review the law enforcement blotters and security blotters that were of the first night of that incident. And he was the one that ordered them to be written up, and he had read earlier. But all of a sudden, as soon as he requested them, they disappeared. No one was able to locate the blotters, Hmm. which contained the incident report of that first night. To this day, those blotters and reports have never been recovered of that first night. Go figure. So something or someone purposefully didn't want any record of what was going on that night. Right. That's crazy. So we get to the early morning of December 27th and Jim Penniston just, he can't sleep. His mind's racing. Um, And he just, just, flashing these ones and zeros just keep flashing in his mind just do, 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 do. and so finally he decides that he's going to take out that police notebook that he's written all his notes in and he's going to just write out all these ones and zeros he's like i can't get this out of my mind like i'll just write it down that that might work
4: now just to recap and so that was what happened in the first episode where he actually had that that encounter directly with UFO where that he thinks that by his thing is a binary code is Mm. what he got flash downloaded basically.
5: Yeah. And I mean, ones and zeros are binary code. Right. Right. So, I mean, that makes sense as to why he would kind of think that. So it takes him about 45 minutes to write down all these ones and zeros. And he said, as soon as he was done writing, writing out the code, if you, if you will, um, they pretty much went out of his mind.
4: Oh no! Shit. So that
5: that kind of solved it for the time being. Um, he had problems with their with this for years afterwards with nightmares. He had horrible nightmares, and that's actually what led to his decision to get hypnosis is to fix his sleeping problem. Not really even to it when he got hypnotized. He, it wasn't his uh, goal to like dig up any lost memories of this incident. He was trying to fix his sleeping disorder, kind of jumping ahead here. But so as pretty much right around the same time as Jim Peniston is writing down the ones and zeros, there is a second sighting going on at RAF Bentwaters, uh Woodbridge base. And I think it's probably the lesser known sighting of all three or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going on around 1:32 a.m. on December 27th. So during the early hours of the morning of December 27th, 1980, uh, 18-year-old law enforcement airman Lori Ann Bowen of D-Flight had begun her midnight shift, having been stationed at the East Gate the sea flight team was now on its three-day break the gate the previous night and because the activity was concentrated at the east gate it was deemed wise to post a sentry on the gate in case of any curious personnel or visitors who had decided to turn up there and more importantly to monitor any further aerial activity Lori observed what she describes as a red orange fiery sphere of light, which also had an eerie blue white corona. It was located on the north side of the Woodbridge runway, some distance away and above the tree line of the forest there. She says, You could tell it was big. It's like looking at the moon. Is the moon big? You knew it was big because you could see it. You know you knew it was off in the distance, and you are thinking it's just like nothing else you've ever seen. You can't even compare it to something because there's nothing to compare it to. And after a while, law enforcement corporal John Tremontazzi was sent to join Lori along with four of his colleagues, also from D Flight. And like uh, like Airman Lori, excuse me, like Airman Lair- Lori, Bowen, I don't know why that's so hard to say all of a sudden, Corporal John Trimentazzi and the four personnel from D-Flight also saw a strange light north of the Woodbridge base runway. Like the night before, they saw different colored lights, red, green and white lights, with or on the object in the forest, which were not flickering or blinking, but steady, and the object was quiet. However, the lighted object would suddenly disappear then reappear at another spot. This activity was repeated and there was no particular pattern as to where it reappeared. They announced what they were seeing to the control tower. Tremontazi says that he and the others in his team had observed it for a good hour and a half and adds that it wasn't stars and that it wasn't a plane. It was just terribly weird. Hmm. And apparently security police, second Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin and master Sergeant Bobby ball were sent out to investigate. After a while, Airman Laurie Bowen and Corporal Chairman Tawsey, who both had been following developments on the radio, then heard Lieutenant Tamplin call out to Master Sergeant Ball. Bob, Bob, where are you? I can't see anything. Bowen recalled the fear in Lieutenant Tamplin's voice and is on record as having said Lieutenant Tamplin was frightened to death. She was so scared and this was our lieutenant. After this, all radio contact with Lieutenant Tamplin was lost for 10 minutes. The story goes that at one point, the vehicle that Tamplin was driving had been struck by light beams and that a small sphere of blue light had raced through the vehicle. It said that all the power went off and the vehicle stalled and died. At this, Lieutenant Tamplin panicked and ran from the scene, having left her firearm inside the vehicle. There were rumors that she had crashed the vehicle and had even discharged her weapon. after this incident, Lieutenant Bonley Tamplin was relieved of duty and was not seen again. And the thoughts of most people was that she had been traumatized by the event, which, of course, infers that she was involved in a real paranormal incident involving a UFO and had been posted in a new position elsewhere in the USAF, also known as the United States Air Force. I'll be damned. Yeah, so um, I've never really heard anybody talk about that sighting. It's definitely the lesser known but that happened early morning on the 27th and the most famous one that we're going to get into is colonel halt's sighting and that is that happens on the the evening right of the 27th
4: Right, and I, and I know, too, I know there's some witness accounts of, like, we're mainly talking about military and what happened on that base because that's where it occurred. It was really directly there. But like the intro had played that you guys have heard a couple times over, there were also sightings from the um, uh, civilians out in town, you know, that witnessed mm-hmm. something and they reported not as definitive as anything else, but, you know, they still reported it. So, you know, yeah. i I'd still there's still these little things that are kind of grasped onto this whole big enigma of what happened. You know what I mean? More mm-hmm. that more than, more than mm-hmm. I just don't think it was documented as well because they're just English people that really don't care. Maybe I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what
5: the case was. And I mean, with this, it's this story so convoluted with so many different pieces and the disinformation story that we'll get into a little later. Like guys went into town, and the memory is just a weird thing. You know, some people might have heard that disinformation story and kind of been like, "Yeah, I, I think I did see something weird that night after the pub or something." Right? Not right. saying I discredit them or anything, but
4: no. But you know, like I said, people are people see, and and again, perspectives. They see things in their their own viewpoint of what their mind's trying to make sense of too so maybe to them it wasn't a big thing definitely was a big thing obviously as, as we lay it out um john before you go on we're going to take a break real quick and uh come back to more of Rundlesham part two stand by
3: welcome beyonders get to this weird place who are these two crazy guys and what is going on beyond terrestrial or bt for short is a podcast dedicated to the strange the macabre the conspiratorial and all things supernatural hosted by dan martin and lee eriot two guys who discovered late night radio shows like coast to coast while working the night shift and stumbled into a world of fantastic tales and local legends.
6: We share these stories with our dedicated
5: fans we lovingly call Beyonders every other Tuesday. Join me and Lee as we take a mysterious journey into obscure
2: local tales and spin up some hot takes on the supernatural stories
6: we all know and love. Two words. Interdimensional Bigfoot. Oh yeah.
4: All right. And we're back. Um, John, you were continuing with that evening, I believe, correct?
5: Yeah. So this brings us into the evening of Saturday, December 27th. We, the story begins with Lieutenant Bruce England, and he is picking up a man by the name of Monroe Nevels. And I can't remember his uh, rank. So sorry, Nevels, but (laughs) his name's Monroe Nevels. He picked him up from his home and he, When Bruce went into Monroe Neville's house, he was like, Hey, you need to clear the house. I have something top secret to tell you. And Neville says like his little toddler was there. So he put her out in the yard to play for a minute. And he tells them that he's ordered by Ted Conrad, the base commander, that they need to go out to the landing site and do their own investigation for Conrad. He's the one. And they're doing this personally for him and it's top secret he's not allowed to tell anybody neville's being a super straight-laced guy and there's all accounts from monroe neville's like from his peers saying like he is a model officer like he's a model uh military man Mm -hmm. so that's a song uh, that's a song (laughs) god modern military man (laughs) yeah amazing i am the modern (laughs) military man yes i am just kidding uh Uh. so they they drive to the base nevels drops his daughter off with his wife that was at some kind of catholic uh church event on the base and they hightail it out to the landing site and when they get there nevels says that they do indeed see the three indentations. They see the, you know, the scuffed up trees, they see the scorch marks and everything. And in his, in Monroe Neville's account, he says that they were out there for about two to three hours, something like that. Mm -hmm. And right then they, the lights returned and they watched the same lights that many of their colleagues had been seen in the couple days prior, you know, the, the red and green and blue. And, you know, it almost gets redundant after a while describing the same thing, but Mm -hmm. they see the same lights that potentially Burroughs and Penniston saw, uh, Lori and Tremontazzi saw, and they are, you know, they're like, holy shit, here they are. And they kind of actually, they get in their car and they kind of drive after it and they would pull over they would get out and Neville's has even commented as saying, as it seemed like the object was reacting to their actions and their movements. And it was aware that they were watching it. Like marrying them, you know what they were something, doing. Wow. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As they were following, like as soon as they would get out, it would like somehow it seemed like it was reacting to them. Hmm. And meanwhile, while this was happening, there was uh, there was a dinner at the officer's club. And it was kind of, it was like a formal dinner award show type of thing. They were handing out various awards that evening, and um, all the all the top brass of the military base were there. You had Ted Conrad, um, Colonel Halt, which was Lieutenant Colonel Hall at the time. He hadn't reached Colonel at that moment. Um, and then there's there's a you know just everybody that was important was there. So they decide to rush over to the officer's dinner and immediately inform Colonel Conrad about what they saw. Like, you know, the lights are, we just saw some lights. Shit's hitting the fan again. Yeah. (laughs) Like we're now seeing it. So Conrad rushes the two men into this kind of small meeting room. And I don't know why there's so much controversy of like, Colonel Holt said it was a broom closet, and they somebody else said it was this kind. It's like who cares? They were all in a yeah, 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 <laughs>
6: small funny. room off to the side, right? Right. Yeah.
5: Right. Like right. W- let's let's move on, people. <laughs> Wait a minute. What so, color was the room? What was it painted? I want to know. Damn Fucking it. Details. I Missed that. God damn it. Well, so yeah, they were rushed. They were rushed to a room by uh, Colonel Conrad, and when they entered the room. Lieutenant Colonel Hall and major Zickler were already in the room waiting for them, Hmm. which they thought was kind of weird. They're like, just seemed strange that they were already in the room and it appeared that they, it's like, they almost knew they were going to get shuffled in there. They informed the majors and the colonels and everything of what they had just seen. Colonel Conrad orders Neville's and, and England to get out there and go. And this is, there's a lot of varying types of stories. Cause this is, this was supposed to be Neville's investigation, but Colonel Halt kind of invited himself on this. And he says that he was ordered to go out there to kind of put this all to rest once and for all, and to kind of debunk everything and everybody on base is, talking about UFOs and everybody's like just getting a little hyper. And so Lieutenant Colonel Halt says he went out there to dispel the myths and just kind of put it to bed once and for all.
4: Now, what's your viewpoint on that? And again, you're the one reading this gargantuan book, but, you know, and of course Josh and I, we've, we've researched some documentaries, but what's your viewpoint on Halt in general? And, and kind of, do you feel he kind of pigeonholed his way into this or this legitimate for what, his role was does that make sense
5: I think he kind of weaseled his way to go out there I mean he's a lieutenant colonel so I mean he kind of outranks everyone right so I mean I think Colonel Conrad's the only one above him so if he wanted to go out there who's, who's gonna say to, it? right who can tell a lieutenant colonel that they can't yeah. you know the
4: reason I asked is because of some of the tapes not only we played before but what we might play here uh, in the future and just some of the viewpoints between Conrad and Halt and what was that's the reason I asked because it was I don't know that that's a integral part of it I feel ex- with Halt involved in what he decided he was going to do but mm-hmm. uh, anyway just a question I was kind of curious pick your brain a little
5: bit yeah well lieutenant colonel halt or colonel halt's stories do sometimes conflict with each other on certain times mm-hmm. uh, people um And I kind of chalk a lot of that up to just the brain is a fallible piece of machinery and humans suck at remembering details. We're not, we're just not good at it. Like we're just just not perfect eyewitnesses. So some of it, I think all of his, all of Colonel Holt's fallacies and kind of mix ups I think they're genuine and not malicious you know what i mean i think right. it's just yeah, on, I get on it honestly getting it the story wrong on accident right. colonel halt advises uh, gathers a small team as well and he goes home and changes and then there's all this there's all this controversy on who picked charles halt up and this is where like his story doesn't make sense with uh, monroe nevels cuz nevels is like i never picked him up i went out there before colonel halt got out there but I just don't see it as being the most important. And There's, if you really want to get like a deep dive into that, you can read the Rendlesham Enigma to really kind of get the whole meat and potatoes on the he said, she said, you know, all that.
4: Yeah. For for, for those of you who are watching the YouTube, hold that book up again, John. Let let the people show just how thick this, uh, this book might be
5: because <laughs> it really is ridiculous. It's yeah, just a it's nice, crazy. Nice Saturday <laughs> afternoon. So. Got a little money in there to mark. I just think it's funny
6: how much drama and controversy there is between a bunch of people who are supposed to be no nonsense professionals. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Me up a little. Yeah, yeah.
5: Well, it just goes to show you that people are actually in the military, and people are idiots. So, yeah, agreed. Um, So Colonel Hall, he goes home, and I think he gets in his fatigues or whatever. And they collect a small team. And by the time Colonel halt gets out there, there's already like 20, 25 to his account. People already out there. Even people like there's a lot of officers out there that shouldn't be out there. They just kind of got wind of it and they're going to go check it out. Cause there's just a lot of excitement on the base right now. So people are just going out there. Um, it's actually kind of chaos actually, because I mean, people are out there with no orders. They're just kind of, walking all around the forest, trying to look for where the landing site is. Restoring
4: evidence, everything else going on.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Colonel Hall orders some light alls to be driven out there. And light alls are just big lights, essentially. So they can kind of see during their investigation of what's going on. And the light alls finally come out there. And the closer they get, I mean, it's the same story. There's static in the air. The light alls stop working. Uh, engines stop working. The radios are shot. People start accusing people of not filling the light alls up with gas. They're like, you just brought us empty light alls. So they actually go back and it's a Sergeant Adrian Bastenza that goes back and he's responsible for refilling the things, but they take it back to the gas station on base. And the guy's like, I've already filled these. So it's just Hmm. a lot of, I wouldn't describe it as pandemonium, but a little bit highly unorganized. And there's kind of a lack of leadership leadership. Nobody
4: knows what the hell's going on.
5: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Lieutenant Colonel Hall finally tries to get some order going And he orders everybody, he like orders everybody to stay back, like don't go any further. Nick Pope is actually quoted as saying, in what sounds suspiciously like a breakdown of discipline, a number of personnel headed out into the force without any order or authority, simply out of curiosity. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was just a free for all. And also, Colonel Halt was freaking out because he thought this was going to be a PR nightmare because everybody was out there. They're not on American soil now. They are out. Right. They're on English the soil, qu- stomping around. Yeah. They're in the Queens Forest. If something happened, somebody caught wind, it's like, what are you guys all doing out here? So, he just thought that the publicity would just be unbearable. It's a public relations nightmare. And Halt is quoted as saying, well, I was quite concerned. So I said to them, let's keep all these people back. We don't need the publicity. We are kind of trespassing. This was the Queens forest, sort of like a national forest. There's a lot of private property around here. We don't want to cause a lot of concern or get people upset. They're going to wonder what we're doing stomping around out here in the woods. So they said, okay. So he finally got everybody there and people. And like I said, cars are not starting. People are, uh, blaming people for not filling the cars up. Radios start acting up. I mean, it's just the classic thing. I mean, it's just
4: one thing after another, just dominoed. Yeah. So
5: Colonel Hall is just frustrated with the lack of discipline that all the personnel are portraying out there. And he tells everybody to stay at the staging post and just remain quiet, which he says they did. And he and a small team of men made their way to the landing site. And I believe it was Colonel Hall, I believe you hear Lieutenant England on there. There's, there's a guy in the background on some of the Colonel halt tapes, like look over mm-hmm. there. And I believe that was uh, England that you can hear
4: yeah. um, real quick, John. Do you want to uh, let people know, because you mentioned Nick Pope, um, do you want mm-hmm. to back up and just kind of remind people Nick Pope or who he is basically? Cause he was, he was high up there for a while.
5: Yeah, So Nick Pope worked with the MOD, the ministry of defense for England And he was kind of like the molder for the MOD. He studied UFOs, and he investigated those for the MOD. And he's become quite the UFO celebrity. He's been on Ancient Aliens. He's been on every single UFO documentary you've ever heard of. I was going to say, I
4: don't think there's one I can throw a stick at that he hasn't been on. Yeah, Yeah, he's got some interesting background, which... You know, kind of gives them a nice knowledge base, I think, too, for what, because yeah. uh, if nothing else, we talk about people who they, uh you know, in this whole line of, of work, you know, if they have some substantial work behind them. And, and I really think Nick Nick Pope is one of them, you know, for mm-hmm. what he what he did as an experience. So anyway, just so listeners know, yeah, I'm sure you heard that name, but, you know, we just want to recap a little.
5: Yeah, yeah, Nick Pope. Um Google him if you're not sure who he is. Um, but, yeah, he, he ran the UFO investigations for the MOD in the early 90s. Mm. Um, he's a cool dude. I like him. Yeah. So at the point when Lieutenant Colonel Halt began recording himself, he was about around 150 feet from the impact quote uh, or impact quote impact point being the landing area relating to the first night. So at that point, the team busted out. They had like night vision. They had starlight scope night vision, and they began investigating the area. They were picking up beta radiation and confirmed that there were indentations on the ground and bird marks and scratches on the trees. Exactly like how previous night. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody that has gone out there and found the landing site has confirmed that these physical traces are there. Monroe Nevels, he says, initially I was looking for any activity on the gamma scale. After little or no activity, I then remo- removed the beta shield and started searching the same areas for any activity with the beta probe as suggested by either Lieutenant Colonel Hull or someone else, likely Lieutenant England. And this is where we started getting the more significant readings. The radiation was definitely beta and the higher radiation readings were definitely at the center Nevels was out there. I remember him getting some Geiger readings that were impressive. I remember saying, Oh shit, there's radiation there because at one stage I was standing right next to Nevels. And that is a quote from Adrian Bastenza talking to Georgina Bruni in 1998. And she wrote a book on the Rendlesham incident. Mm. And this is just some chatter between everybody. And this is on Colonel Holtz um, recorder after he started. So, The ground appeared to have been blasted at that spot, which would have been directly underneath the center of the craft. Lieutenant England, this looks like an area here, possibly, that could be a blast. It's in the center of the triangle. Halt, it's hard to tell. Here, take this. My finger's about to freeze. And then Halt says, we found a small blast, what looks like a blasted or scruffed up area here. We're getting very positive readings. Let's see. Is that near the center? Yes, it is. Well, we assume it is. This is right in the center, dead center, England says. Neville's picking up some more as you go along the whole area here now. So this is just kind of them just chatting and everything. And then, so the light, the light were still not functioning properly, but Holt's patrol were managing to get by with the star scope and their torches. Nevertheless, the light all situation was becoming a major problem and vehicle engines were also affected. And Lieutenant England tried again to get Halt's attention, this time on the same abrasion pattern evident on all the trees surrounding the clearing or landing site and only on the sides of all trees facing inward towards what England called the blast area, the center point between all three depressions. And so, yeah, they're just seeing everything that Burroughs and Penniston have have, uh, reported earlier. So I think that gives a lot of credence to what they were saying. And he just, Colonel Halt just goes, keeps on recording from there. And at around 1.48 in the morning, Halt mentions on his tape that the animals start on the farm because they're right near a farm. Yeah. Says they start making a lot of noise and were acting very strange. And then static was in the air again and, you know, representing the that the phenomena had returned again. Then Bruce England looks and says to Halt, there's something out there. Look at that. It was some type of red thing.
4: Yeah. Okay. So this is where we get into this. Um, So there are Halt tapes out there, and anybody can look them up on YouTube and find them. It's about 24 minutes long. Bear in mind, listeners, it's kind of hard to hear. This is all not only is a walkie-talkie conversation, but it's walkie-talkies that are taped, which makes it even worse. So but we're going to play some actually a
5: cassette recorder.
4: Yeah, but he was still uh recording the walkie talkie speech back and forth, right? On the cassette recorder. I mean he was just speaking into a cassette recorder. Oh, because there was different there's like four voices going on how needless that's, to say it's just that's crappy. just what
5: that's what the cassette so, recorder is picking up is like people just talking oh, gotcha. behind okay. him. Yeah.
4: Either it's or, it's a not good. It's shitty
5: recording either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either yeah way, it, it sounds
4: horrible. Yeah, it sounds horrible. But there are some things we can make out on that. So we're going to play a couple clips real quick. We'll play one, we'll kind of talk about it, and then we'll play another uh, and probably catch a break after that. But, um, yeah, these are the hall tapes. So uh, stand by. You'll listen to some weird stuff here.
8: It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. The like pieces of the off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. To the left. Yeah, definitely move two, two, lights. Two one light right to the front, okay. and one light to the left. Keep the flashlights off. There's something very, very strange. Get the headset on, see if it gets it's any stronger. Okay. It was giving you wet out. Notation, this is on, the on a beta reading too. on a beta reading? Okay. It still has been removed. Okay. This is a fall it's off it again. And it just moved to the right. Yeah. Across to the right. Strange. we going to Okay, we're well, to the edge of the woods up there. Can we do it at lights? so carefully. Come on. Okay, we're looking at the thing. We're probably about two to three hundred yards away.
2: It looks like an eye winking at you. still moving from side to side. And when you put the star scope on it, 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 sort, it sort of has a hollow center, a right? dark center. It's, it's you know, like a pupil of an eye looking at you, winking. And the flash is so bright to the star scope that
8: uh, it almost burns your eye.
4: I'm so glad technology is better nowadays. Oh my Christ. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, I mean, interesting. This is what they're seeing out there. There's something out there, you know, just like this whole thing. I don't know. Thoughts.
5: I mean, there's some there has to be something out there, and I just don't think it's a lighthouse. <laughs> Surely <laughs> one of those guys out of, you know, out of the small group that's there has to go. Uh, It's a fucking lighthouse, dude. Let's go back. I'm cold. Right. Right.
4: Well, and we'll get it, I think, a little bit of that towards the end because there are all these weird theories that, uh, I don't know, a lot of them just don't stick to the wall. I mean, they really don't, you know, especially when mm-hmm. you have these eyewitness accounts. So mm-hmm. um, let's play clip five and then uh, we're going to roll into a break. So we
8: see uh, stroke like flashes to the, uh, probably sporadic, but there's definitely something, uh, some kind of phenomenal. 305. at about, uh, 10 degrees horizon, uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half moon shape, dancing a with colored lights on them, but, uh, it's supposed to be about 5 to 10 miles out, maybe less. So turn in the four firms have now turned into full circles. I know there was an eclipse or something there for a minute or two. During so the now, we've got an object about 10 degrees directly south, 10 degrees on the far side. And the ones in the north are moving, ones are moving away from us. Moving, moving, moving. Moving out fast. This one on the right side is away too.
2: Yeah, we're both heading north. Okay. Oh, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground.
4: This is unreal. Yeah, I'd say it's unreal. Definitely. That's amazing. Um, stand by for break, guys.
2: like podcasts and you like science come on baby listen to us oh my god is that good
8: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was that was epic listen
3: to the mad scientist podcast on all of your itunes and other listening things i'm your host chris Cogswell here with my co-host marie mayhew and we
8: sing we sing we sing a lot we sing for science yes
3: we talk about science, we talk about history, we talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs and things, and it's a lot of yeah. fun. So come learn about yes. ghosts and UFOs and physics and chemistry and a little bit of biology. And about economic collapse. On the Mad Scientist Podcast. Oh my
4: god. Alright, and so we're back. You know, again, you know the hall tapes are amazing to hear, but you know, it's technology, I guess, in general. Um, but, you know, people like that, and again, John, you mentioned about the lighthouse. There's other theories going out there. I, It's really hard to think that that is the case when you have that many people and that many things going on and that's what they're witnessing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's just not, I, I concur with it. That's just not a lighthouse. I'm sorry. It's just not, you know? No. So,
5: crazy. It's, it's definitely not. So, Monroe Nevels is quoted as saying, The object then moved back into the field to the left of the farmer's house at about 11 o'clock ahead of us. I had to track along with the men and so to remain free. I left the radiograph instrument where we had just been taking readings and moved to the edge of the farmer's field. As we stood behind the fence that led into the field in front of us, we then saw what looked like a large oval yellowish object hovering low in the air with also yellowish blue and red colors as though it might be a very hot metal or steel burning at very high temperatures. It resembled a boiling pot of hot molten metal or steel, which had pieces dripping from it or had pieces discharging away from it. This would be the closest analogy I can make to describe it. Pieces of flying debris were being shed, and it seemed to get hotter the closer we got as we approached it. What we were observing made absolutely no sense at all. It appeared to be motionless and still, as if it were recharging itself. I then took a few photos of it with my Nikon F3 and a 105 millimeter f 22.8 2.8 lens with Tri-X at ASA 400. Uh, Neville's was actually a professional photographer as well. Oh, okay. That, now that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After that, Lieutenant Colonel Hall and I took the initiative and climbed over the fence, but almost as soon as we touched ground on the other side, the object or vessel moved and appeared to be moving towards us. I say appeared because everything happened so quickly. I've noted that several witnesses who were out there with us that night have claimed to have also climbed over the fence, but this is not true. I never saw anyone else climb over the fence. There was just not enough time for anyone else to follow Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Hall and me in climbing over the fence and retreating back over again quickly. In any case, just as the object or vessel appeared to be rushing towards us, it suddenly disappeared. Hmm. And it seemed like it just disappeared in a flash and wow. people were like a little dazed by this and were in awe that it was just so fast and you know they're just like where did it go what the hell just yeah, I happened
4: just, just just like that then it god it's crazy well so here's yeah. the thing there's also and let me I don't think I mentioned this on the first one um but there're Yes, this happened. This incident happened with the UFO. This is huge with Rindlesham because it, it not only was witnesses, like we mentioned, not only the locals, but military was involved. Other people had witnessed it, um, kind of similar to the same thing, but not to get folklorish. But that forest in general throughout the ages has become a little folklory. Like there's oh, yeah. just been weird things that have happened in reynoldsham forest creatures back in the day that people talk about and these other things that had happened it's just not this one little incident it's that area has just it's been somewhat of a hot spot for a lot of the locals and a lot of the english lore and and i i don't know if that leads to anything or adds anything but it's interesting so
6: yeah it's it's regional like regional folklore for sure like black shuck and stuff like that mm-hmm. around there
5: yeah. yeah there's also uh a 1956 incident of jets chasing over bent waters. And on the night of the 13th, August 1956, one of the most significant UFO encounters took place over bent waters. Uh, the Air Force Intelligence Information Report on this incident on the 13th, 14th, August 1956 was filed by Captain Edward L. Holt. And on the night in question, radar operators at Lake and Heath and Bentwaters Airbases in the east of England had repeatedly tracked both single and multiple high-speed objects, which made rapid changes of speed and direction. Two jet intercep- interceptors were sent up, and the pilots were able to view and track them in brief series of maneuvers. According to official U.S. Air Force reports, the sighting could not be explained by radar malfunction or by unusual re- weather. Hmm. So that was back in 1956, a little... Yeah. A little Another piece,
4: little tidbit. So you know, there's more stuff out there. You know, just that area
5: has just been, just yeah, just been crazy. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that didn't end it for the sightings, though. Um, It disappeared, and then Monroe Neville says that after a quick search, I then looked up and noticed three grayish lighted disc like objects overhead, about a thousand feet off the ground. It looked as if our activity was being observed. I then pointed out to Colonel Halt they were in the sky. Hmm. And now that the three objects were being observed in the sky, Colonel Halt continues his account by telling us that he was able to use his radio to ask the command post to contact the air traffic control tower on the Bentwaters base to see if anything had come up on the radar. Their response, they came back and said nothing. They don't see anything. Halt then told the command post to have Eastern radar, which had the radar for the area, including air defense and also Heathrow tower to try and locate the objects. Halt told them where the objects were, but again, the same answer came back. Nothing. Negative.
8: Hmm. Hmm.
5: Wow. So pretty interesting. Um, and there are reports of some of the airmen being terrified, even crying and refusing to go even, uh, even further. Further into it. Uh, yeah. Well, with that being. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead.
4: I was going to say, I wanted to, uh, you know, we've got one more clip of the halt tape, which kind of wraps it up of when it kind of disappeared and they started going back to the base. And, and I think at that point, yeah, if you're any airman, that's probably the line you're going to draw in this hand and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't know what I signed up for, but it wasn't this. So anyway, let's play that real quick. The side looks like
8: it's losing a little bit of altitude. We're turning on, heading back toward the, the base. The object to the south is still beaming down
4: lights to the ground. For 400 hours, one object is still over and over Woodbridge Base at about 5 to 10 degrees off the horizon. Still moving erratic and similar lights and beaming down as they're Yeah, okay. And again, there's more to the Halt Tapes, but I think that um, that kind of gives you the gist of it
5: mm-hmm. for the yeah, most part. Yeah. And If you do want to listen to the entire Halt Tapes, it's about 24, 25 minutes and you can just easily find them on YouTube. Yeah, and
4: they're, I think what we might there, do, we available. might we talked about dropping them on uh, for Patreon listeners. For those of you who are Patreon, we might just go ahead and drop that entire tape session on there so you don't have to go look for it. Um, the whole session is very interesting. I, I'm, granted, you know, a lot of it is they initially get out there. They see what they're doing. They're doing the investigations. And it's not to the last, you know I'd say, 10 minutes when they start seeing what they're seeing. They do the radiation testing that we talked about in part one and some of the other things. Um, Very interesting all in all, but uh, I I think we might do that just for you, Patreon listeners. So become a Patreon member. And we'll do the work. And we'll do the work. That's right. (laughs) It's not like a tire commercial. Jeez. Okay. Anyway.
5: So those are kind of the sighting, the main sightings that have happened. I know there's other sightings here and there, but those those are the the three main ones and essentially the two main ones because the middle one isn't really that well-known. And I think the first night is the most important night because, you know, agreed Jim Pinnyson actually saw a craft on the ground, touched it, felt it saw markings, got some transference of knowledge directly into his brain. The second night is very interesting with the Colonel Halt tapes, but it was them just seeing lights in the sky essentially. So I think the first night is a lot more significant to me personally.
4: I I think so. Listen to the story. I I tend to agree with you, John. I don't know about Josh. I mean, I think that's really what hit people the most in that first night. The second one was probably people were were still kind of reeling in what was happening and and gathering their, their, you know, their ambition up to go out and see what's going on.
5: Yeah. Well,
6: some lighthouses. Yeah.
5: Well, and it seems like the first night has actually, there's been a lot of effort to kind of initially cover that night up and they just wanted they just wanted to right. they would rather have stuff focus and that's kind of where the containment and disinformation story came from was the third night and that's kind of what they wanted to focus on and add on to that so we'll, we'll get into that but so the aftermath on the morning of December 29th Jim Peniston was called into the AFOSI office and that's the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And he was called in there for a meeting, and he was met there by two agents. And these two agents asked Jim Peniston to write down what had happened to him on that first night of 25th into the 26th. And they said, you know, Jim, don't, don't leave out any detail. No detail is too small. Tell us literally everything that happened that night. So Jim's like he knew that this would be a career ender. He's you know, he even told the guys, he's like, I'll write it all, but it can only be a career ender, career ender doing this. And one of the agents said, Don't worry about that. This is a confidential <laughs> investigation, and we have no ties to the United States Air Force. The oh. statement won't ever be viewed by anyone at the base. So it's sure. interesting there. You don't have anything to do with the Air Force, Sue. So who are these people? Are they with right. the CIA, DOD? You know, who, who are these people involved with? But, you know, anywho, Jim writes down a detailed four page summary of what had happened to him that night. And the people read it. And after they were done reading it, he you know he wrote the de- a super detailed description. He even drew pictures and everything. And after the two men were done reading it, they told him, "Okay, this is your story." And they handed him a piece of paper with it, it's it's like two paragraphs, three paragraphs, super small, super Typical. super simple, Typical. zero detail, and it's just not what happened. And he said. Or the two men told Jim, "This is the story you're going to tell from now on. This story is classified. You're never allowed to talk about it. Anytime anybody asks you what is ha- what happened that night, this is what you're s- supposed to say. Your career will be fine if you stick to this story. So that is where mm. that's where the cover story came from." And he, he didn't sign it. He didn't date the paper. Um, and he actually still has a photocopy of that paper.
4: <laughs> no shit. That's funny.
5: Mm. Uh, it's actually It's actually in his book, too. So after his meeting with AFOSI agents, he had a meeting with the base commander, Ted Conrad, and Conrad had asked him to tell him exactly what happened the other night. And Jim kind of thought that this was his test he was he was just like okay i'm i'm being tested and so he told uh colonel conrad the cover story yeah and he said you know he felt like shit for saying it you know he's lying but he he needs to keep his career intact i mean he's a family man um that
6: was part of conrad's dismissal of the whole thing too was he said that um that Colonel Hall or the Penniston. Yeah. Thank you. I got them confused for a second. Yeah. He said that Penniston even gave him a very vague undetailed account and then basically made all this stuff up later.
5: Yeah. um, Yeah. 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 um, And (sighs) I actually purposefully left out a lot of names in this story just because It's just a lot of names, and it's easy to get confused. So,
4: well, but I think that's fair on your part because I mean, honestly, there there really isn't but a handful of key players. I mean, there Mm -hmm. was other people that saw, and I think even you know, well, is it Neville's? You know, I Mm -hmm. mean, it's legitimate because he does have some background. He did have a part of it, but you know, you start throwing everything out there, and that's where it gets lost in the weeds. And and I think a lot of stories do because you have so many different involvements and some of them, there's so much thing is getting too deep. And then by that time, the story's fucking lost,
5: you know? Yep. So, yep. Um, And actually Neville's, his story has never changed. It's never wavered. Mm -hmm. Um, He has always been, he's always told the same exact story. Yeah. So when you're stretching the truth or when you're lying, you know, it's, it, It's hard to keep track of what you're saying. But essentially, after Colonel Conrad, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Halt requested to see Penniston, and he he told Penniston that he had actually seen the object last night as well. And Penniston said that he felt a great relief off his shoulders, and he's like, holy shit, you, you saw it too? And he's like, yeah, and he said... He asked Jim to write him a report because he was now in charge of the investigation. Hmm. But Jim now knew he was part of the cover up. That's what he was thinking. He's like, well, right. now Colonel Halt's part of the cover up. And he said he tried to remember to the best of his ability the new short cover up story and gave that version to Halt. And I mean, he gave that version to Halt, he gave it to Conrad. And over the next few weeks and months, Jim was interviewed and interrogated constantly. Not only by people in his chain of command, but other Air Force agencies and various branches of service, both in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, And he always gave the cover story. Hmm. Always. Jesus. And that's why he was able to continue his career in the Air Force. Um, There is a man named by the name of General Basley, and he was given Halt's tapes to listen to. And everybody just wanted to distance themselves from the events that happened over Christmas. Like, nobody, I mean, it's the military. No one's trying to mess with UFOs. They're all serious men. And he basically said that it happened off base and on British turf. So it's a British affair. And that was that.
4: Fair. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's right. So, you know, there is that, but
5: still. Mm hmm. And I mean, it, he's the general. So what are you going to say? Right. Um, you're you're it it actually there. it actually took two weeks before the bases reported to England about this incident. Really? So two weeks had passed before the English authorities had even found out about this.
4: But found out on the on the military side because there
5: again yeah. there were some local reports. Okay. December 31st, Jim goes to pick up the pictures that he had taken and of course none of them turned out. Of course. Yeah. Um, also, Monroe Neville's him being the professional photographer, he took pictures and he said he used all fresh chemicals like everything was brand new in the darkroom um, and those didn't turn out either and he says that he blames the radiation fields that were going on that possibly messed with the pictures being taken.
4: I heard that on several different reports too. Cause when I initially heard that there are pictures and, and you cover that in part one, I frantically looked on the internet and of course nothing. I mean, there's, there's nothing. So that, you know, mm-hmm. that makes sense. That wraps that all up in
5: a neat, tidy bow. Doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yep. So the containment story is JD Engel's, was responsible for spreading disinformation story around the base and local areas just days after the incident. Ingalls claims that he was ordered to do this by security police squadron commander Major Zickler. And Zickler was one of the people in the room uh, when Lieutenant England and Monroe Nevels were rushed in and had that quick meeting before they assembled the team and went out to the forest on that third night. And so in the book, it's... Says, in any case, in hindsight, it's not what I said or did not say to J.D. Ingalls that was important. What was important was what he was telling me as he began to open up on what he knew and what he was involved in. In short, Staff Sergeant J.D. Ingalls had told me that he had been tasked to give out a disinformation story around the base and in the local area just days after the incidents. My response to him was, why in the world would you want to do that? He then said that this was what he was told to do by the security police squadron commander, major Malcolm Zickler. Ingalls then added that he then Ingalls then added that he then gave out the story in conversations around the base and in the surrounding area and would then report back to major Zickler to let him know how the story was being received and consumed by the people at the base and by the locals. Hmm. And he said, Ingalls said that, what he was uh, what he was told that the disinformation story he would be putting out about the incident would evolve as just another UFO story and that this was the best solution to hide what had really happened. He added that he was told to assume the identity of a security patrol airman and spread the disinformation around on base and at the local pubs he visited regularly. And by embellishing Halt's story with disinformation would make the whole incident just another sensational UFO story which would be seen by many as being too ridiculous to be true. He said, I asked about the disinformation and what exactly he had been saying. Um, so yeah, JD Ingalls kind of went around and said, only talked really about the third night. He said that there were aliens that came out. They he Part of the story was they saw creatures, aliens, and then some people were trying to help them fix their craft. What? Yeah. That's part of the containment story. Um, so some officers were trying to fix their craft and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, and that's just turning it into a ridiculous oh, yeah, cover, you know, ridiculous disinformation yeah. story because, Oh, they were trying to help. Like this is a potentially an interdimensional, craft or something coming from a different solar system. And and the so
4: radiator I, hose broke.
5: Yeah. And so they needed the f- yeah. somehow the military knows how to f- <laughs> Oh <laughs> oh okay. Yeah I see this. I, I, I know gotcha. there's no propulsion system yeah. on here, yeah. but uh
4: your thingamabob flux capacitor isn't fucking working yeah. right. So you know we'll we'll yeah. swap that out. Jesus Christ it So
5: me. that is the that is kind of the story that was going around to everybody. Mm. And there's a guy named Larry Warren and gay Greg Batram. Right. And they're both used as prime candidates to be used as a useful, unwitting misinformant for the agents of deception. According to Jim Penniston, mm. um, Jim Penniston calls Larry Warren a useful idiot. <laughs> and it's suspected that JD Ingles told Penniston the story to see, engage his reaction and report back to his handlers. And it was smart of Jim Penniston to just never say anything, right? Right. And when I first looked at clips and I was trying to start putting stuff
4: together, I stumbled on the Larry thing, and I, I remember asking you too. I was like, "Well, this one guy that got interviewed and he was on the site, and you're like, flat out, oh, he's a dipshit. He <laughs> wasn't even part of the." So that I can see, it's very easy to go down that other rabbit hole of what actually happened, who's saying what. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just a lot of stuff on, on the backside of that completely. So, yeah. anyway.
5: So, now we get into everybody that's claiming that they were involved, claim getting into people that claim they were there, and they have these fantastic stories. And one of these guys is Larry Warren. He's also known as Art Wallace, and he claims that he was personally involved in, the UFO events that took place off the base. Right. Um, his story made it into the tabloid news of the world almost exactly a year after the incident. Um, it was also featured in the book sky crash and he was in it under his pseudonym pseudonym art Wallace. And he also co-authored a book with uh, UFO researcher, Peter Robbins. I'm not sure if our listeners have heard of him, but, um, he's a fairly well-known researcher and he's, I, I think he's a good guy too. Um, that book's called Left at Eastgate and it was published in 1997, but there's a lot of there's a lot of things that have came out with uh, Larry Larry Warren that were brought to Peter Robbins' attention kind of afterward. and he, Peter Robbins has basically distanced himself from Larry <laughs> Warren. Um, they stopped printing the book Left oh, wow. at Eastgate. So if anybody is out there trying to get a legitimate book on the Rendlesham incident, um, do not get left at Eastgate Cause it's, he's full. That's of not
4: going to that be the right one to do. Okay.
5: Yeah. Outed. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. I guess this is a good time to, well, so he, Larry got involved with, uh, Betty Andreessen and, his, uh, and her husband, Bob Luca. And Betty Andreessen is a famous alien abductee. And they got him in touch. They got them in touch with Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood and their founding members of CAUSE, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy. And Fawcett's the one that gave Warren the name Art Wallace. And it's pretty doubtful that Warren had ever been debriefed or interrogated during his brief time in the air force over these incidents or told to sign papers that restricted him from taking talking about the incident after he was discharged from the air force as claimed. Um, And according to all the prime eyewitnesses, he was never involved. No one ever saw Larry Warren anywhere near any type of, any type any, of uh, anything
4: you can report that yeah. he was actually part of any search party or what was going on.
5: Yeah, no one can yeah. account for him. There is stories of Adrian Bastenza, the guy with the LIDALs. He goes back and forth with his stories of, yeah, he was there, he wasn't there. So there's a lot of, if you ever read anything from Adrian Bastenza, take it as a grain of salt as well. Um, And Warren couldn't have been on duty, actually. He was still completing his six- to eight-week training because he just joined RAF Bentwaters on December 1st, 1980. And Warren actually produced Air Force documentation that showed he had completed his training and was assigned to official duties on December 11th, 1980. But evidence has come to light in January of 2017 that two of Warren's documents had been forged. And this was kind of a big deal, so I am going to read this little these some some of these notes. And it is this is a statement from Peter Robbins. And um, in her book, you can't tell the people. George Georgina Bruni writes that she had received a letter in nineteen ninety nine by a friend partner of Larry Warren's who had pointed out that his medical records should be proof enough that he was involved in the Rendlesham incident adding that Warren had produced medical records for an eye problem, retina burn, that he had suffered while at Bent Waters, and as a result of the incident, i.e. the flash or shards of light he saw when the red ball of light exploded. However, in January 2017, Sasha Christie, in her article, Larry Warren Issues, statement about his documents, Colonel Charles Holt responds, Sunday, January 15th, 2017 revealed that the medical paper that Warren has long claimed as proof of his eye problem while at RAF Bentwaters is a forgery also discovered to be a fake or forgery is Warren's in process instruction sheet. And here's some relevant quotes. So Jimmy church runs a radio show. Yeah, heard yeah of he's
4: actually kind of cool.
5: Yeah. So Jimmy church. Okay. I'm going to ask you three questions back to back and all I want is a yes or no answer. Okay. 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 Night 26. Did you see Laura The night of the 26th. Did you see Larry Warren? John Burroughs? No. Jimmy Church night two. This is written. Sorry. Weird. Night two, day two on the base anywhere. Did you see Larry Warren? No. Jimmy Church day three. You're out there with Hall and Bastenza. Is there, is there two as well? Did you see Larry Warren? No. And that's John Burroughs being interviewed by Jimmy Church on fade to black. January 23rd, 2019. Hmm. So, Left Eastgate is a strange book. I can understand why people unfamiliar with the case will be awed by it because Warren and Robbins tell a fantastic tale that is just what people want to hear. It is exactly what you would expect to be turned into a movie. And Jenny Randall's posted in August of 2009. And getting it right at Eastgate, Jenny Randall's words are quite prophetic because Larry Warren is the main focus of a movie now being made. Oh, Jenny Randall's is the one that said that, that Peter Robbins and them, basically, their story's so fantastic it could be a movie. And Larry Warren is in the main focus of a movie now being made as this is being written about the Rendlesham incident titled Capel Green as produced by Gary Hesselstein. It's highly ironic that the non witness who was never there has always been first at everything before the primary witnesses from worldwide public exposure in 1984 to now being the star of a movie demonstrating the age old adage that a lie will go once around the world before the truth gets its running shoes on.
4: Yeah. I found that was very interesting because I stumbled across that too, that it seems like he is involved in all these things, but come to find out most of his backgrounds, complete bullshit. But, you yep. know, that goes for press, and that just goes for media in general. And they're going to grab on anything that's sensationalist. And yeah. it, it just what it is. You know, it's absolutely what it is. So,
5: mm-hmm. so um, yeah, just – and I've actually heard of Capel Green. I think that might have come out in January of 2020. Actually.
4: I'm not sure. I think it was out or it will come out because I, I missed it, track on that.
5: Yeah, so um, – I'm not even going to bother watching it if Larry Warren has (laughs) anything to do. Um, So just a little bit more. Uh, Warren also mixes up chronology and details of the two trips with the Lydals. Not only that, his account is non, not consistent, not consistent. Excuse me having stated that he was picked up in a Jeep and then by a pickup truck while also stating that another guy had taken his place at the post while on other occasions, he has said that the post was deactivated. um, None of his state, none of his accounts have ever been consistent Mm -hmm. and it just points to him regurgitating people's stories that he's heard and been told. Yeah. So, and all these people that have interviewed him that have written books about this incident, have kind of got that feeling as well. And then there was like people have questioned him like, well, how many personnel were out there? Uh, There's a thing called, there's a story called the Airman's story. And it was published in the news of the world. And Warren as Art Wallace is quoted by reporter Bob Smith as having said, the clearing was full of RAF and USAF security people, about 200 of them. Later in a phone interview, he is taped saying, would have to say at least 100 people. I don't want to say two or 300. Yeah, there were quite a few. When Larry Fawcett interviewed Adrian Bustenza, Bustenza said at least 30 people. And finally in his book, East at Left Gate, he decided to bring that number down to around 40 people. Of course so he did. So Larry, Larry Warren's account of how many people were out there on the third night has been just...
4: Wildly speculation. Yeah, wildly <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's amazing, man. I mean, I, yeah, I think there's something to be said with that. Um, John, real quick, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and kind of wrap this uh, part up uh, with some other stuff. But very interesting in general, just everything laid out. But uh, stand by, guys. We're going to take a quick break.
2: What up, knockers? Aries, Stop insulting people. These are potential listeners. Yeah, I'm so sure. Happy Horror Coffee Break Old Time Horror Radio Show! We take the best and worst ah! creepy pasta stories online, and our finest of quality reenactors perform them for you in the style of old-timey horror radio dramas. Everyone knows it's just you disguising your voice poorly. No, it's not. Besides, we have an abundance of great guests. There's music and T-shirts and a bunch of Dick and fart jokes. You're not wrong. Catch us at all the major podcast thingamawoppers We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Schlapstick, Hardknockers, and the rest Idiot Tune in every other Friday There's a new episode Or just stick your head in an oven Same difference (laughs) Aries We need to have a little chat (laughs) Toodles
4: a joint. All right, and we're back. Um, we're going to wrap up this episode a little bit on that. John, you had some other things on your side, some tidbits, and then uh, and then we can kind of tell you what our what our plans are for you know the remainder here.
5: Be weary of who you're kind of reading. I think Jim Peniston is a very credible source. Uh, I think John Burroughs is credible. Colonel Hall is fairly credible even though he might get some, some things mixed up here and there. Um, I would be weary of anything. When you see anything with Larry Warren or Art Wallace, I wouldn't listen to that one little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime there. you're reading anything about this, if you see the name Larry Warren or Art Wallace, um, immediately Run. take <laughs> it as just whatever. I mean, if you want to read it, go for it, but just realize that it's not real. Um, Adrian Bustenza was out there, but he also he's uh, his accounts are just like way too off and way too wishy washy and like it's it's just really strange. So anything kind of by that, I would definitely be um, I would be kind of hesitant on taking their word for it. But the three main guys: Halt, Burroughs, Penniston, Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where you want to go in this, in this realm.
4: Agreed. Of things. Agreed. I think that, and you know what, we always challenge the listeners to go ahead and listen to all sides. Cause you know, I mean, you can't, you can't really gather a hypothesis till you know both sides, but you know, we've done most of the homework for you where John has actually on this one. And, uh, and I think you're right on that. Like who's credible and who's not credible. But by all means, you know, the door is open. You guys can do whatever you want. There's other things involved in this. That's pretty much the bulk of what occurred. We covered the first night, which was major. We covered, you know, our eclipse recordings, who saw what, and some of the witness accounts and some of the after effect. Um, There is a little bit more that we're going to actually venture into Patreon with where we're going to cover where they are now, what they're going through, some other plausible theories, uh, and then just some ins and outs of things that had happened. It's going to be a short little Patreon episode. Won't affect this. This is a story of Reynoldsham in a a big nutshell. And again, thank you, John, for doing the homework. But uh, if you do want to follow that on Patreon, by all means, you know, we'll have that along with other bonus episodes over there. Um, Amazing. And I think my side, you know, if you look at it, like you said, who to listen to, who not to listen to, John, I think the same thing really goes for anything, any case, take Roswell, for example, which really is, you know, this is, they say England's Roswell the same fucking exact thing. There are certain characters that you need to pay attention to. There are certain characters that you really don't. And I think it's gotten so convoluted over the years, a lot of this shit's just muddied in the waters. And so, yeah. you know, that's the problem with a lot, especially if you're looking at a case that is over 30 years old and Christ Roswell's way older than that. So you can imagine mm-hmm. everything that's lipped onto that too, you know?
5: Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I think this is just a fascinating case. Um, even if Nick Redfern is real, or his theory somehow is somehow he he right. cracked the case, right? That's th- crazy that's as still well. Crazy. I mean, we will get into that. Uh, I don't want to get too much into that, but we'll get into that on the Patreon episode. Yeah. So we'll I've got that's that. Just, yeah. Sorry. Let's
4: just ahead.
6: hint about nerve gas and <laughs> could yeah. it have been the lighthouse because of nerve gas right. or pranks from the SAS or whatever? Right. So I mean, yeah. you know. So chef. I,
4: I've got that book and, you know, I'll read a little bit more into it. So by the time we line up the Patreon episode, you know, I, maybe I'll have some stuff on my side and then I'll throw it at you two for that. But um, anyway, hope everybody enjoyed that. It was interesting for me because I really have heard of it, but I never really dived into it. John, good luck finishing the book. You only got another 4,000 pages and that's then I think it. you'll be done <laughs> on that fucking thing. <laughs> anyway, follow us, everybody. You can follow us on all social media platforms. Uh, you can write us if you have a story or you have a talk- topic you want to suggest at at gmail.com. You can call us on our hotline, and we do have a few calls that we've got saved. We're trying to kind of build them up a little bit so we can kind of do a special episode. But if you have a, a story of a family or a friend or something you encountered um, that's just crazy, you know, by all means, you can dial in our hotline, 801 252
6: 45.
4: And you let us know that way. And then, uh, Josh, John, where are we at with all the other social?
6: Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Strange Uncles. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at StrangeUnclesPodcast.com. We're on the Gmail. If you want to email some stuff to Shane, that's pretty cool. StrangeUncles at Gmail.com. And uh, we have a YouTube channel. So if you want to see our ugly faces go there
5: and, and please rate and review the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, it helps yep. with clarity and bumps us up. And you know, we want to share this with as many people as we can. So yep, please rate and review. Absolutely. Hopefully you take you guys out of the,
4: you know, the bullshit that happens every day and you get a strap on your weird minds a little bit and enjoy us for at least an hour, hour and a half. And you know, that's our goal. So hope you guys are liking that. Um, again, John, kudos. Thank you for taking the homework and the time because I know, you know, it's a project. We each, all three of us kind of pitch hit a a topic we want. And, and when we do it, we, we each take, we put a lot of time into it. So hopefully you guys kind of appreciate the, uh, you know, the transparency and the detail work on it, you know, so much appreciated. You guys got anything else?
5: No, I think we should just, uh, close the gates.
1: been listening to a fourth hand production.